0: It's time for the Little Agency That Roars podcast, a podcast that connects you with talented and brilliant people. And that's all of us. We are available wherever you stream your podcast, so go ahead and find us and subscribe. I'm your host, Michael Fassoni, and let's get started. Good work, good work, well, I'm sitting here with Norm Craig. Norm, how are you?
1: I'm great, thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, thank you for coming by Fasonian Partners. Okay. We love having you here. Let's tell everyone who you are first, and maybe how I how we met.
1: I believe that most people uh, in the greater Kansas City area know very little about me, except my close business associates and friends. But the woman that I'm married to uh, seems to have you know to know a lot of people. Uh, we call her Rochelle from Carpet Corner, and believe it or not, she's been doing the Carpet Corner commercials. I believe since uh, april of 1987 somewhere in that time frame so she's a veteran uh in fact i think you might have been the one that told me that in the history of kansas city television she's the longest serving spokesperson for the same company uh, beating uh, the, the late bill grigsby i believe i think she is
0: yeah um who would have Bill been the sole spokesperson for? The Chiefs?
1: He did, uh, I believe, uh, like a supermarket ad, like high V. Okay. And he also did the Chiefs, you know, forever. Whatever. Okay. And I played golf with him a couple of times. What a great man.
0: We played, <clears throat> him and I actually had the... Yeah. The, yeah, him what and a, I played
1: once at the National. Yeah, what a great man.
0: Um, yeah, he told me a great joke. I'll never forget it. It was towards the end and... We were at the clubhouse, and my father, I was playing just a twosome, my dad and I. My dad asked him how he was doing. He goes, I'm sold. I no longer buy ripe bananas.
1: (laughs) I'll never forget that. He was a good guy.
0: But yeah, so you're married to Rochelle Craig. Yep. And obviously, we've been working with, you know, you guys in Carpet Corner, which are not related. Nope. um, For, you know, years and years and years, at least 10 years. And over those 10 years, I've gotten little snippets from you. You know, you and I run into each other. Right. Different places, restaurants, here and there, out in public. But the last time we met, you started saying some things that I'm like, they were really phenomenal stories. Truly, you know, awesome. Yeah. In every sense of the word awesome. Well, thank you. And it's like, okay, this is the type of person that needs to come on the podcast. <laughs> because, again, like we discussed, you know, a week ago. Let's capture these so that they yeah. live on forever. Yeah. Um, it, t- tell me, and, and we heard it from Michelle, but um, tell me about y- your side. You, you growing up, and you know, you grew up in the arts. You grew up cultured. You grew up East Coast.
1: Yes, Phil, uh, born in born uh, in the oldest hospital in the United States of America, Pennsylvania Hospital. Founded 1767. Michael, you'll know that I'm a man of history as you get to know me better. And, uh, yeah, I was born at Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia, raised in, you know, Philadelphia. Uh, parents moved to the suburbs uh, when I was three years old. I had a blessed life growing up in Springfield, 12 miles southwest of Philadelphia. It, uh, it would be like Overland Park to uh, Kansas City, southwest of Kansas City. And I, uh, I, I had a blessed young life. I went to good schools. I had good parents. Uh, you, you could take public transportation into downtown Philadelphia. It was wonderful. It really was.
0: And your father was very involved in Hollywood and the arts yeah. and...
1: I'll, I'll tell you the, just the quick story. I didn't know any of this until I was about 12 years old. Uh, my father uh, was born in 1909 in Philadelphia, and his name was, he was born, you know, like on his birth certificate, he was born Norio Gregorio Cugino. Isn't that a great name? It's Norio Gregorio Cugino. And uh, My father's uh, family, let's just say, was involved in uh, uh, business in Philadelphia that my father did not want to get involved in. And uh, my father, for reasons that I'll never know, uh, I've been told by the family that he left South Philadelphia High School when he was in 10th grade. He was uh, a dancer, uh, a ballet dancer, a modern jazz dancer. He could tap he could play the trumpet. And uh, he and other women that he knew, uh, I, I will also add that in 1927, and I can prove it, when I went to the Philadelphia Library, my father was uh, selected as the most handsome man in South Philadelphia. It's a, it's in the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is still the main paper in greater Philadelphia. And my father uh, got involved with vaudeville. And... Uh, he wound up getting married at a relatively young age. I have a half sister who's ninety years old, who lives in Connecticut, and my father uh, uh, was in a show. He was the opening act for Jimmy Durante and Gypsy Rose Lee, the Red Hot Mama, and they would travel in the in you know the early thirties uh, up until the you know maybe the end of the nineteen thirties, you know in vaudeville acts and you know just go all over, go all over the country. He could not use his last name uh, because nobody used their last name back in the days. I mean, John Wayne's name was Marion. You don't think Rock Hudson's you know, name was Rock Hudson. Marilyn Monroe was not Marilyn Monroe. So uh, my father took his first wife's last name because it was a benign name. You know, what's a Craig? Her name was Elizabeth Craig. She was referred to as Elsie, Elsie Craig. Right. So my father became norio with an american pronunciation became norman Well, it also helped him shake that stigma yeah. that he was living under right so he was norman craig and uh when he was in vaudeville for many many years uh he was a member he was a part of the dancing craigs again they would open up for jimmy duranti jimmy duranti was a very young comedian singer uh i guess he was I, maybe he wasn't known for his big nose back then who knows and then, they, and then uh, Gypsy Rosalie would end the show. I'm sure there were other, but they traveled around the United States by train, my father you know, told me. And then my father got involved with uh, Warner Brothers in Hollywood, don't know how. He was Busby Berkeley's assistant uh, lead choreographer for the Gold Digger movies of the 30s. Gold Diggers of 1932, the Gold Diggers of 1935, the Gold Diggers of 1937—very famous Hollywood dance movies. Busby Berkeley won Academy Awards, you know, for production and choreography. So uh, somehow, later in life, he came back to Philadelphia. He uh, kept his name, kept his stage name, and legally became in 1948 Norman Craig uh met my mother, who was 20 years his junior, and uh, together they started in Philadelphia, incorporated the uh, Philadelphia Civic Ballet. And I will tell you, Michael, that uh, if you were growing up in Philadelphia in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, my parents were dance in Philadelphia. I mean, if you went to a ballet at the uh, Academy of Music, if you went to... Uh, you know, shows in the in the community. My parents brought dance to you know to the uh, to the, the greater good of you know men and women who didn't have the money to go to
0: mm-hmm. the Academy
1: of Music or you know the Schubert Theater in Philadelphia. Uh, my mother used to have high school programs too, and to you know to enrich younger kids' lives and to uh, introduce dance to them when they were in junior high school and high school.
0: Now, your father met your mother after he had already acquired these uh, careers. Yeah,
1: my father, uh, my mother became, uh, my mother uh, heard that my father was a a very significant choreographer, dance instructor. Uh, You know, he was famous when he first came back to Philly because of his time in Hollywood with Warner Brothers and then Metro Golden Mare. Sure, sure. I mean, my father has pictures of... uh, John Wayne, uh, Charles Bronson, as part of their young lives when they were in on a contract like with 20th Century Fox and studios like that, my father was hired to teach those guys how to ballroom dance. Wow! That was part of you know they were taught how to uh, sit properly at dinner and uh, you know how to eat properly and you know how to but, but you know they all had a dance at some point. So my father would teach them how to ballroom dance or had a two step or whatever the, the Hollywood moguls basically said was part of a new actor actor and actress's contract. So my father got a big bang out of that. Do you know how your father got into dance? You know, I, I really don't know, but back in the days when my father was a younger, you know, man and a teenager, uh, a lot of very famous people that you know later in life, you know, like Fabian or or, you know, Frankie Avalon, uh, many, many, uh, you know, actors came and singers came from Philly. But I guess back in the 20s, uh, there was just a lot of, you know, modern dancers and tap dancers that, you know, came. Somebody, you know, must have, uh, you know, taught him. I don't, I don't have that story. My father wasn't that much of a sharing guy. I learned a lot of it, you know, from the family and pictures. Uh, and I, I don't know. Because, you, you know, you wouldn't think of a tough guy in South Philly becoming a ballet choreographer. Mm -hmm. Uh, My father and mother were very good friends with, to me, when I first met him at 11 years old, I was 10, excuse me, when I met him, and you might not know the name, but uh, my father and mother were friends with the man who defected in 1959 from the Russian ballet, Rudolf Nureyev, the great Rudolf Nureyev. You know, as a child... To me, uh, meeting Nuriev would be like meeting one of the Beatles okay. growing up Roman Catholic. I'm a Methodist today, but growing up Roman Catholic, uh, it would be like meeting the Pope. And later in life, when he was still a dancer, Baryshnikov came along, Mikhail Baryshnikov. And to me, those are the two greatest male dancers of the 20th century. But my parents uh, had a beautiful ballet studio in Philadelphia. And they had a dance floor that was oak. Professional dancers would not dance on linoleum. They wouldn't dance on concrete. They could get injured. And my parents had uh, dance bars, and they had mirrors all over their very large studio. They had speakers. And, you know, you know, good sound, a good sound system. And uh, Nuriev was attracted to that. And he trusted that my parents wouldn't give him up <laughs> And mm-hmm. tell people that Rudolf Nuriev is in our studio tonight. <laughs> so my parents would shut the studio down sometimes early. Uh, he was a guest artist with the Royal Danish Ballet. And uh, maybe six or seven of his dancers would come, and my parents would allow them to use the studio, and my father would warm them up.
0: Do you know how your father got into position to be recognized, let alone hired by Warner Brothers and big
1: studios. I believe that during the vaudeville years that, uh, he was, he was perceived and considered a, a very strong dancer and he helped other men and women learn how to dance. His ability to choreograph, you know, to teach. And the fact that, uh, he understood dance notation, which nobody understood dance notation. Dance notation would be like shorthand. You know, uh, when I was growing, when I first started, you know, like You could dictate, uh, like, a message to an administrative assistant, and they would write in shorthand, shorthand like in a courtroom, you know, where you see those people on those little machines. So dance notation is dance in shorthand, and my father understood that. So men and women could come up to him and have their dance uh, on paper in dance notation, and my father would then be able to look at it, study it, and 20 minutes later he understood the dance and, and how he was going to enhance it. And I think that was a skill that very few people had.
0: Oh wow! Okay. Yeah.
1: When I was a child, and I would come home from elementary school and junior high school, I still have a memory. Uh, my father would be at the dining room table in Springfield, Pennsylvania, and uh, I would walk in, and he, you know, he would—he was like in a trance. He had a Magnavox reel-to-reel tape recorder, and. Uh, and my mother would be sitting with him sometimes, not all of the time. And my father would be playing this music, you know, Tchaikovsky or, you know, you know, some incredible, famous dance music. And, like, my father would be, like, I'd come home and I could see my father, like, make I'm, I'm you know, making these sounds or these, moving my hands around. And he would be doing this. And in his mind, he was creating. And he would tell my mother, Alicia, he'd say... Uh, s- uh, sachet, sachet, potty, beret, twice, uh, uh, three leaps, turn around, sachet, potty beret. He was creating, and my mother would be writing the dance. Oh wow! It was it was, a, it was amazing to watch, and I have this one famous you know in my this is a famous memory when I met Nuria for the first time. I was in awe of him. And my father said, I was in fifth grade, and my father said something like, the reason I picked you up from school today is, you're going to meet Nuriev," And I was like, (laughs) and I'm like, I was scared. I was scared to meet him. And my father said, when you see him, try to say something just respectfully to him. I'm going to let you decide. So when he came into the studio, he came in with his interpreter bodyguard. He was also a dancer. And he was wearing a Cossack hat and, like these boots, and you know, nobody was dressed like Nureyev, and he said to my father, you know, like hello Norman, and he spoke broken Russian, and hello Alicia, my mother. My mother just would fall over for this guy. Just he was he was a magnificent looking male, mm-hmm. just unbelievable. Not tall, five eight, five nine.
0: Okay,
1: and uh, he said, this is my son Norman Jr., and I looked at Nureyev. And I had just seen him on the Ed Sullivan show on the previous Sunday night. Okay. You're too young, but Ed Sullivan, the, the no, show I, I shows in Ed Sullivan from like 48 and to 70. And I was in your living something. room. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I looked at him and I said, Mr. Nuriev, I saw you on the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday night and you were fantastic. And and Nuriev's response, which will sound arrogant, was he did not mean it with arrogance. I, I still remember... But he said something like, "I know." But <laughs> I, I, that was, uh, you know, that was the English-Russian. I don't. Know, he didn't really know what to say, so mm-hmm. he went, "I know." Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was not. He was not an arrogant man. He was agreeing with you. He was agreeing with me. Mm-hmm. But and then my father told me to leave them alone. And Nuriya handed my father. Nobody understands this in the world we live in today. He handed my father a box a, or a. A Scotch tape, Scotch brand, reel-to-reel tape. His music was on the Scotch tape. And my father walked up the steps and put it in his Magnavox, you know, record recorder. And I saw my father putting it, you know, like doing the circles and Mm -hmm. getting everything in there. And Nuria was in the dressing room. And I went, I went in there, you know, to, to talk to him, and I realized he was getting undressed, and I'm thinking, I don't think I should be mm-hmm. in the, you know, the dressing room with Rudolf Nureyev getting undressed. And then when he came out, he was wearing, like, white tights and, like, a red top. I mean, it was... And then my father, uh, uh, the other people, uh, he, was, he had Nureyev for maybe the first half hour, and my father said, like, Nureyev, to the bar! <laughs> oh, my God, he's yelling at Nureyev. And, I, and uh, my father said get out of here, you know, to me. Uh-huh. And Nuryev said to my father, let him stay, let him stay. So my father let me stay for maybe 10 or 15 minutes as my father worked Nuryev through, you know, the uh, preparing, you know, to dance, you know, the, uh-huh. the, like the calisthenics of dance. And had him, you know, uh, and my father had uh, had a, like a dance bar. Uh, it looked like a big pool stick and he would beat to the tempo of the music and Nuryev would listen. And then my father looked at me after about 10 minutes and goes, I told you, get out of (laughs) here. And Nuriev looked at me and he went, scoot, like, scoot, scoot. (laughs) That's my Nuriev story. It
0: was time to work.
1: Yeah. And then uh, the next day, my parents say to me, "Nuriev's performing in five weeks at the Academy of Music. It's the 100th anniversary of the Philadelphia Academy of Music. At the time, they were very well known for Eugene Ormandy and the great Philadelphia Orchestra. The Academy of Music was built in 1865. And my father said, there's a, there's a scene in a toy store, and you don't have a lot of dancing to do, but there are some moves. You're going to be on stage with Nuriev. And they told me three days before this happened. This happened in May of 1965, May 11th, like. And
0: what is this year you're in? It
1: was, a, it was a show. He was the lead dancer, the guest star dancer for the Danish Royal Ballet. You know, at the time, he had left the Russian ballet. He was now super famous everywhere in the world. So to be like when the, uh, you know, when the stage curtain went up and I could see thousands of people in the audience and Nuriev is dancing in front of me as a, as a kid that was going to be 11 in about a month, I mean, I have to tell you, that was some pretty, that was a big deal in my life.
0: Were you involved in dance and music at that point in your life?
1: Very. Uh, I, I don't want to make it sound bigger than it was. My father uh, was really not for me getting involved with dance. Oh, really? And, and the unfortunate story that I, I think I even shared this with you at one time, but when I was very young and I first started you know, going to dance class, I used to be beat up. Right. You know, by, like if you're in second grade and a kid's in fifth grade, you know, if somebody's 11 and you're 8, that's a big deal. Right,
0: that's a big age If you're gap 60 then. and
1: somebody's 63, it's not a big deal. Right. But uh, I just can tell you that... Uh, and kids at, are cruel. After uh, maybe, you know, taking a lot of abuse in the neighborhood and taking... I, I think I mentioned one time I came home from whatever I was doing, and it was late at night, and my mother didn't get all the makeup off my face. You know, if on stage you, you have to wear makeup, I don't care who you are. And I got beat up, like, at the bus stop. I got beat up at school, you know, uh, later in life, I took care of business when I was older, and those kids were little. I I never forgot. To tell you the truth. Well, and they found out your, your family's lineage. So I, I and got in, so I got involved in sports, and baseball was my was the big thing in my life. So that's what.
0: But I did. you did eventually get into dance, didn't you?
1: No, you never did. I was involved with dance for maybe eight years, year old to eleven years old. Okay. And without trying to come across as inappropriate or arrogant. You know I was built for dance. You know I mean I had the legs for dance, and uh, most dancers of that era, if you were over six feet tall, that was actually difficult because most prima ballerinas were like five feet to five four, five five. If you were over five five, it was it was very difficult, Uh, especially if some of the male dancers like Borishnikov and Nureyev, which were the lead dancers in everybody's mind, they were not they were five eight, five nine, five seven, five eight, five nine. Today, there's many men, you know, that are over six feet tall, and there's many women that are 5'7", 5'10", 5'11", that are dancers. It's a different era today.
0: Let's talk about that for a second, since we can. Um, is there a reason? Does the body not move the way a, um, that type of dancer should at that height? Or is it, is it more so over time you're, uh, a taller person just can't move that way? I
1: just think, it, you know, I think really if <clears throat> people that are choreographers by trade and if you look at some of the greatest women dancers in the history of dance – Ginger Rogers, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, if you think, and you look at their height. There's a sweet spot. There's a sweet spot. And it's really uh, how long their upper leg and lower legs are. A lot like modeling. Exactly. There's a sweet spot for
0: modeling. I don't care what people say. There's a
1: sweet spot for turns. Mm -hmm. There's a a sweet spot for jumping. And there's a sweet spot for how much a man can handle when somebody is thrown into the air and has to be caught and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, you know, the the world's a different place. My parents wouldn't allow a dancer to even take a lesson until they were five years old, you know, physically and mentally. They had to be a minimum of five years old before they could start a dance class. We have kids today that are even starting, you know, before that. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's just the world's a different place.
0: So this is where you really got your appreciation for the arts. Music, yeah. theater, dance.
1: Like, uh, if you go to because my. Because you and Rochelle attend a lot of local. Yeah. If you were to. I mean, I've known Rochelle so long that she has. Uh, she even took a dance class from my father before he retired oh, at the cool. Philadelphia Civic Ballet you know, School before my father retired. And uh, my mother. Uh, uh, like, a, uh, my Facebook page has pictures of my mother and father in their younger years. I mean, my mother uh, was Armenian. Her name was Alice Dekarian. I will tell you, Michael, that if a name ends in I-A-N, uh, you are Armenian, like 99% for sure. If, your name, if you have a four-cylinder, four-syllable last name and it ends in I-A-N, you are Italian. So a few weeks ago, somebody came up to me and said, Norman Craig, Norman Craig, what's your background, Norman? I said, well, my father was Italian and my mother was Armenian. And this person looks at me and goes, Craig, Craig, how's that Italian? And I said, well, what if I told you it was Cugino? And then this woman says to me, well, what's an Armenian? And I was really, I have to admit, I was frustrated. So I said, look, I'm half Kardashian, okay? I'm half, I'm half Kardashian. And she got that. She got that. <laughs> it's A universal language. Yeah. Robert Kardashian. You know, the Kardashians. So when I, as soon as I said, look, I'm half Kardashian, she was, oh, I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, so I thought that was a good one. So my mother, uh, you know, grew up a very proud Armenian. If you are Armenian, uh, you know about... You know, you, there's always the Nazis and the Jewish people of World War II. Well, the reason I'm here is because you know there was the Turks and the Armenians in the teens of 19, the 1900s. My grandmother was put on a boat and arrived in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I don't know in 19 whatever, and uh, that's because if she didn't, she would have been killed on the on, you know on the streets of uh, Istanbul, so or Constantinople, which was the capital of that area back in the day. So. Uh, You know, I grew up a very proud Armenian, and I grew up trying to explain to people how Craig is Italian.
0: Right, right, (laughs) right. So it it seems like, though, meeting um, this famous Russian dancer was more paramount to you than, you know, meeting whatever sports celebrity may have existed at that time or even movie star for that, that example. That was a really big deal to you.
1: I think because my parents were in awe of him. And, my, uh, and when my mother would talk about Nureyev, she talked about him, that there, there's just no other dancer she's ever been around or ever seen. His ability to leap and his strength on stage. You know, um, I post one minute to two minute Nureyev and Margot Fontaine. She was, he was maybe 21 when he came to the London, you know, the Royal Ballet. She was twenty years his senior. She was ready to retire. She danced until she was forty-eight and was teamed with Nuria because Nuria gave her made her young again mm-hmm. and, and continued Dame Margot Fontaine. Uh, I have, you know, like a one-minute video and, and I write to like my followers and I go, I really am upset that nobody ever there's no analytics that anybody watches this. Trust me, watch one minute of pure ballet greatness and it's one minute of Nuriev. And it's like when I watch it, I get goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Here I am at this stage of my life. And when I watch when good dancers are on stage, I get goosebumps. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to watch I cannot wait to like to watch the Kansas City Ballet or to be to go to a city and be invited to the to the ballet. I I adore it. I just love it.
0: We actually had uh, Jeff Bentley on the podcast, the former executive director of the KC Ballet. I don't yeah. know if you heard that episode. I think you did. but yeah. um, Very fascinating gentleman. Very fascinating story. Yeah. But as you understood the enormity of, and the beauty of that art and you got to see it firsthand and you knew how rare and fortunate that was, did you get, did you get how large it was that your father was working with John Wayne? And working with the biggest studios and you know, yeah. I believe America that, at the time. Well,
1: I believe because I wasn't, you know, I was never, I, I mean, I'm, I'm part of my father's third family. My father was married to this Elizabeth Craig. Again, I have a sister, Romney. Mm-hmm. She's 90. She just turned 90 years old. She lives in Connecticut. And, you know, we, we were friends. My father had a second wife. Her name was Rhea. And he was one of her dance partners, too. Okay. But I never had a relationship, you know, with that second family. Uh, my father, you know, just did not have a good relationship with that family. He got lucky, you know, when he met my mother. He got lucky, I believe. And uh, he was a difficult, you know. He and was
0: a, how old was your father when he met your mother? Roughly.
1: Well, he met her in 1950. Uh, okay. They got married in 1951, and uh, I was born in 1954. Okay. So, the uh, the only way that I heard about things like, you know, my father uh, in Philadelphia taught dance over the radio. He would teach. How was that possible? But I mean, it's in the archives of you know of the uh, WIP radio. My father had a class on the radio where he taught people how to dance. Uh, My father was involved, as I mentioned, in vaudeville. My father was involved at Warner Brothers, and on paper is the lead assistant choreographer for Busby Berkeley and the very famous you know gold digger movies of the 30s are there any uh, but he never but he never used to tell me about that I, I would hear it from his sisters he was the youngest of 30 he was the youngest of 13 children and I would hear it from his his sisters were very proud oh, wow. of, his sisters were very proud of him my father you know they were very proud of him and they would say did you know your father did you know your father? Uh, Did you know your father? You know, and I I, I, when I would say things to my father, he just they didn't talk about themselves. They just had thirteen aunts. Well, I mean, they were uh, again. Remember, my father was spread across three three different uh, families. There was a very short period of time when all of them were alive, but uh, the last one died when she was eighty-nine. But you know, uh, when I was growing up, uh, they all lived in South Philadelphia. We lived in the Philadelphia suburbs. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, letting you know they were all old. You know, we were just young kids and they were mm-hmm. old because, you know, by the, you know, when I'm a teenager, you know, my father is, uh, you know, in his 50s, uh, you know, 50s mm-hmm. and 60s. He died when he was 82.
0: Is there anything in Philadelphia that commemorates your family or father?
1: Well, I, I you know, it's not like there's a rocky statue on the, you <laughs> well, know, the, I don't know no, that no, no. Just they're curious. Like, uh, no, I don't, I don't really think there are. Uh, my father was involved in uh, teaching young dancers who later became Broadway stars. And, you know, in their memoirs, or sometimes if you were to go to see a show, mm-hmm. they would say, I was trained by Norman Craig of the Philadelphia Civic Ballet. And again, in, in the, maybe in the 70s and 80s, that would be a big deal. You know, here we are now in 2023. I, I don't think that anybody would remember my father. Uh, there is a website that's uh, the Philadelphia Civic Ballet, like the history of the Philadelphia Civic Ballet. And my sister built it, and my mother and father, you know, are mentioned on that website.
0: And what is the website?
1: It's uh, like www.philadelphiacivicballet.com. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Temple University, where I graduated from college, and my sister, too, uh, has a, a, like a Philadelphia Civic Ballet archive. So if you go to the library... Of uh, the Great Temple University in Philadelphia, there's an entire archive of the Philadelphia Civic Ballet from the 1950s to the ni- to the end of the 70s.
0: How hard was it for you to leave Philadelphia? Tim, uh, watch your your foot. There's on that. Yeah, honestly, foot's grabbing his cord.
1: I started with a company called Marion Laboratories, Ewing, Marion, Kaufman, Mister K. The great Ewing Marion Kaufman, and uh, you know I I graduated from the uni- or I graduated from Temple University and went to school, uh, you know where I went to school, and I uh, went to work as a pharmaceutical representative for this company that nobody heard of, Marion Laboratories. Hmm. My father said, "Did you know that Ewing Marion Kaufman is the owner of the Kansas City Royals baseball team?" And I'm like, "Oh my goodness, Philadelphia Phillies, Mike Schmidt." third base. Kansas City Royals, George Brett, third base. They both make the 1980 World Series. I'm four years into my new job. I call on Philadelphia wholesalers, you know, that, you, you know, that help uh, facilitate the delivery of Marion Laboratory product. I got to go to games one, two, and six Uh, You know, as a Philadelphia, you know, Trenton area. At the time, I lived in New Jersey. But because of Ewing, Mary, and Kaufman, I got to go to the Phillies. The Phillies beat the Royals in 1980. You know, like, you can't say that. Well, I was a Philadelphia fan at the time. That's where I grew up. So uh, that's how I got here. And I will tell you that uh, when I would visit the greater Kansas City area, and I went to sales school in 1977. And when you go to sales school, you visit Ewing Kaufman's home. So maybe 20, 20 of us, you're in Kansas City for two consecutive weeks. Later in my career, when I managed training, uh, you, you were here for three consecutive weeks. After I uh, got to know Ewing Marion Kaufman, and after uh, you go to his home, and after you see the, the Kansas City and the plaza and the suburbs... I couldn't wait to leave Philadelphia. Rochelle Murator and Norman Craig were the first people in the history of those two families to ever have moved more than 35 miles away from the greater Philadelphia area. Really? Yeah, our parents were ill, both of them, when we left. We got on a plane one day, and we flew here. And uh, we lived in. I lived in a hotel for six weeks until our house was sold. Then Rochelle joined me in February of 1981, and uh, we lived in Lenexa for five years, and then we built a house in Overland Park in a a very nice neighborhood called Nottingham Forest, and we were there for 34 years to the day, December 8th to December 8th, 34 years later. And now, as you know, we've downsized to a smaller home.
0: Did you really want to live in Kansas City?
1: I wanted to I mean I loved living in I love living in Johnson County uh, I'm one of the few people that have seen and experienced the rebirth of you know Kansas City downtown I give mayor Barnes tremendous credit I just I was very involved when she was there I was very involved in building businesses in the area and I, I believe that the men and women who were running the city but I from a leadership standpoint you always need good leadership you know like you come to Kansas City today downtown people are living there you have food like constantinos there's theaters there's restaurants that you have to have reservations for it's hard to get a parking place hey these are all good things that say that this city is in a this city is growing this city is a place that you might want to be and if you live in the suburbs because of the highway system that we have what do you you can't be more than 30 to 45 minutes right. away from anything important right yeah, we were downtown last night seeing uh, Brian Culverts and at the Midland Theater. It was, it was great. How wonderful.
0: What was the... Did the art scene back then in Kansas City give you what you wanted compared to where you came from?
1: No way. No way. We had a dinner theater, and we had a Kansas City ballet that didn't have a budget. It did not have much of a budget. The men and women who built the Kansas City Ballet to what it is today... I would tell you it's probably one of the top five to seven ballet companies in the United States. Right. If somebody doesn't believe me, then go see, go to the Kaufman Center and but see. But that only happened in the last
0: decade or so.
1: mom uh, maybe fifteen to twenty years, but for the last decade, it's it's big, and it's and they're they're attracting men and women who are signing contracts and staying in Kansas City twelve months of the year. They weren't able to do that years ago.
0: And, and I guess where I'm going is, so how do you feel? <laughs> moving from a place where you had a rich provenance uh, with your family and art and culture, sp- specifically dance and music, and now you're in Kansas City.
1: I and, think that... And we uh, don't have
0: yeah. that infrastructure yet.
1: Yeah. I think it's building in Kansas City. I think Kansas City has a lot to be proud of. You know, uh, Philadelphia is obviously not New York, but Philadelphia has very solid theater. And there's a lot of shows that when they leave New York, they'll always come to Philadelphia You know, maybe it's a traveling show, or maybe it's with the great majority of the you know the superstars. But uh, you know, Philadelphia, you know, uh, is really a a good city for the arts, and I think Kansas City is a city that's coming of age. Uh, You know, very proud of where Kansas City has come. But
0: what were you doing in 1980 to scratch that itch? We didn't have because we didn't have that entertainment here for when
1: I when I would come back to Philadelphia, you know, to visit the family during the holidays or during the summer. Uh, I was very good friends with a guy uh, that's in the Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, He was called the Geeter with the Heater. He was the big boss with the big hot sauce, (laughs) the famous Jerry Blavitt. Jerry Blavitt was uh, in charge of Philadelphia, you know, young people dancing and all the clubs. My parents were friendly with him, and that's how I met him. We would go to his memories in Margate, New Jersey, you know, about seven miles south of Atlantic City every summer. I had my 60th and 65th birthday there. And when I would walk in with Rochelle in the summer, and he didn't even know we were coming, he'd see me walk in because he was on top of the podium where he would be, you know, playing the discs, you know, the 45s. He'd just go, uh, the first few years, he'd say, oh, my goodness, Kansas City is in the house. Kansas City is in the house. Then as the years went by, he says, Norman Craig from Kansas City is in the house. And then we took a picture with him for 10 consecutive years uh, at, the, at the record podium. He would not take a picture of me unless Rochelle was in the picture. He loved Rochelle. He loved my wife. Yeah, so we would always hang out with Jerry Blavitt. And Jerry Blavitt would have like Chuck Berry coming in that weekend. We we knew we 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 knew we were going to see him, or my mother would say, "Would you like to go to a show?" You know, uh, and my mother would you know would have to, because of who she was and her reputation, she could get us into a, you know, like a. You know, whether a musical or she could get us into a ballet or something of that nature. So we always seemed to see something when we would come back, and my mother would always be in charge of it.
0: So you got to scratch that itch when you went back home to Philly?
1: Yeah. And it's not that I didn't, you know, see the Kansas City Ballet, but not like I do today. Correct. Or it's not like the Kansas City Symphony was not the Kansas City Symphony in 1981. I'm sorry, they just were not. And uh, we had very close neighbors that were uh, double bass principal double bass assistant principal they were our neighbors they were in the ballet for 40 years until they retired so we always you know we got invitations to you know to come but when the Kaufman center opened i would i think that that was a total rebirth you know whatever side you're on you know the ballet is on the uh, the Mrs Kaufman side and then we just saw Audra McDonald a couple of weeks ago what a Probably the third time we've seen her. We've probably been to the Kaufman Center fifty or sixty times. Mm-hmm. I would tell anybody: make sure you get a yeah, you chance. You guys
0: go to a lot of shows.
1: Yeah, I would say you, everybody needs to visit the Kaufman Center, but visit the Uptown Theater, visit the Midtown. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there, or the Midland. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much history in this city. Mm-hmm. There really is. Go to go to the Playhouse in the Park, or I mean, you know, go see things. So Norm, what
0: are Burger King stories?
1: Burger King, where kids are king. So uh, when I was uh, <clears throat> maybe 15 and a half, my mother and father, who did not have a lot of money, believe me, as artists, they just, we lived in a very nice neighborhood. We were the poorest people in the neighborhood. My mother would take my sister, Carla, four years younger than me, a great dancer in her life, great dancer and choreographer. Uh, we, she would take us to dinner one night a week. It was a Thursday night. And I don't know, maybe if she spent 12 to $15, that was too much for her. And we would go to these little diners. You know, Philadelphia is well, well known for diners. So then this Burger King uh, opened up on Baltimore Pike in Springfield. That would be like Metcalf Avenue. And there was a guy in there that just always seemed to be there on a Thursday night. He, he's turned out to be my best friend in life. His name's Ralph, Ralph Papa. And uh, I used to wear a leather jacket, you know, back then. I thought I was a little tough guy. And, uh, you know, he just got to know me really well. My mother, you know, we would get Whoppers and, I don't know, shakes and fries. And then one day Ralph says to me, uh, hey, man, uh, maybe you want to work here someday. I'm, I'm, we're trying to hire some new people. Uh, do you go to Springfield High School? And he goes, yeah. He goes, well, that's not too far away. What do you think about coming here to work? So I went to work, from, I went to work at Burger King in 19... 19- Sixty-nine. I was 15 and a half years old. And then maybe a few months later, maybe, uh, maybe it was uh, yeah, a few months later, I was working Tuesday night with my friend. His name was Jerry, Jerry Schull. And Jack, the manager, was in the back. It was a Tuesday night. It was very slow. It was like 8 o'clock at night. And Jerry comes up to me, and he goes, Norm, have you seen the fox that Jack's interviewing in the back I go, "No, oh my God, she's a fox." So I'm like, I gotta check this out." Yeah. So I walk around back and I see this young girl named Rochelle Murator <laughs> who has, uh, you know, uh, the kind of hair that Mrs. Adams wore on the Adams family, you know, the parted down the middle, long. Uh-huh. And Rochelle was heavier back in those days. And let's just say I saw her from a side shot, and I was impressed. Okay. And uh, so later that night I go, Jack, who was that? And he goes, I just hired her. Uh, she's, uh, we can't, she can't work nights. But we're going to have her work, you know, like uh, Saturdays and Sunday afternoons. And you're, since you're an assistant manager, you're going to train her on Saturday. And I'm like, she will be mine. Oh, right. going to oh yes, here. she will be mine. Ah, ah, ah. And uh, so I taught Rochelle how to. We at Burger King we had something called the backboard, and the backboard <laughs> is where whoppers were made. And a, a whopper had to be. If you worked at this Burger King, There's a few jokes in there. If if you if you worked at Burger King, let me tell you something. Building a whopper was a science. It had to be done correctly. Wrapping one was important because if, if you you know if, if you like tossed a whopper to somebody. It, it, it did like it stayed together, uh-huh. and I'm telling you, building a Whopper was mm-hmm. a science. And we had a broiler, a broiler. You would put a frozen Whopper or one that's you know been it's thawing, and it would go 45 seconds through a broiler. When it came out the other side, it was
0: perfect.
1: The Whopper was just perfect, and you would put on a very nice you know soft bun with sesame seeds. And that you would put the you know, you would put the, the bun, you know, the, the burger on the bun, and the first thing that would go on, the very first thing that go on were pickles, and then onions. And then you would put ketchup. The ketchup had to be swirled in circles to cover the entire bun. Then on the top, you would put mayonnaise, not too much mayonnaise, not just a little bit of mayonnaise, but a perfect, you know, like dump of mayonnaise. Then you put lettuce, and then you'd put two tomatoes. And I always remember the owner would say, always use pretty tomatoes, girls. Pretty tomatoes up front. We'd put two perfect tomatoes on top. We'd press it down slightly and we would wrap it in such a way that it would not come apart. Wrapping a Whopper was a science. I I trained, I, I was the guy that took the orders. So if somebody said, uh, three Whoppers, three fries, and three Pepsis, I would write it up and I had to know the math and I had to make the change all myself. There was no like, machine you just you had to just know everything and then I would pass it along to the expediting line and guess who the expediter was Rochelle Murator and she would put the order together and hand it out and me and five other people could run a Sunday lunch and dinner shift and a Saturday lunch and dinner shift and we would then you know compile how much money came in the door and we always had the highest sales for Friday and Saturday noon to five than than any ship during that time frame of sixty-nine and seventy.
0: Okay. And that's how I met so her. So let's get to it. How long do you both work together before you ask her out?
1: Oh, I got into a lot of trouble. Tell me about, uh, tell I,
0: me about all of that trouble then.
1: Well it was August. I can tell you the date. Go ahead. I tell you, I'm I am i I'm good at history. It was August sixteenth, it was a Saturday. I asked Rochelle out, and she thought I was asking her out. How long had you worked together? Two months, three months. Okay, and it's killing you. Yeah, but I'm dating a girl from Springfield High School who's a junior, and I'm a sophomore. Her name's Marion. By the time Rochelle already starts, at, yeah, at, I'm, at and the she game. works there, and Marion works there too. So I'm oh, dating oh,
0: your girl, Your girlfriend works there.
1: Yeah. And, okay. But I wanted to date Rochelle. Uh-huh. But I didn't have the guts to tell Marion that I wanted to date Rochelle. So whatever happened, I, I took out Marion that Saturday night. But for lunch, I took Rochelle out to uh, the International House of Pancakes. And Rochelle remembers to this day that I ordered a cheesesteak with onions. And she couldn't believe that I would be out with her and I would order onions on a How, steak. Did she know you had a girlfriend? No. Yeah. Okay. So it took maybe six weeks. And both of them found out on the exact same day. <laughs> They both found out on the same day that I was dating both of them. How? Uh, one of the one of, their, of, one, of, the girl, one, of uh, one of the girlfriends, you know, saw me with Rochelle. <laughs> and uh, they, they both dropped me on the same day. <laughs> they both dropped me. Um, so I had two girlfriends and six weeks later I had no girlfriends. Was this plan on their part? No, they, did, they, both, they, didn't, they didn't even talk to each other. They just both found out, and they both told me oh, off. Oh, so they
0: found out independently. Yeah,
1: and they told me off, and, I, and look, I deserved it. I mean, I, what am I going to say? I deserved it. So that's the worst day of your life at this point. Yeah, I was young. I was I like, mean,
0: cl- yeah, I was it like, has to be.
1: Yeah, and then slowly but surely, I, uh, Rochelle, you know, I, I mean, I pursued her heavily. Oh, no, we're not going to cliff note this part of that. No, okay. I mean, I, I pursued how do you, her. How
0: do you, how do you, uh, how do you
1: get that respect back? I apologized to her profusely I told her look I was dating this girl because I liked her and then you came along well
0: um, can we can we, can, we ask, can I ask what do you tell what do you tell what's her, the other girlfriend? Marion what do you tell Marion
1: I, I told Marion I, I really apologize but I, I really I, I'm really like in uh, enthralled with this new oh. girl Rochelle and I didn't know who I was going to be okay. so I needed to so go you, out with her a couple to of times that to Rochelle. yeah I mean look She was very bitter about it. I mean, as the years had gone by after that, you know, Rochelle broke up with me a few times. I mean, we knew each other. I mean, I've known her for 53 years. I met her in 1970. So uh, we've been married for 46 years next week. So, you know, during that dating time, you know, she was a very popular actress at Westchester University. She's the only actress that we know to this day that, you know, they have Academy Awards every, every year. She won it two consecutive years in a row. Nobody's even done that since then. And uh, she was very pretty, very attractive. Uh, you know, uh, everywhere she worked, the, she worked in a bakery and all of the mothers would come up to her and go, I want you to meet my son, the dentist. I'd like you to meet my son, the doctor. I want to come over to, to my house. I want to introduce you to, to my son, The lawyer. And what the heck was I? The king. Nah, I, I was at Temple University <laughs> graduating with a Burger degree king. in secondary education starting uh, with a pharmaceutical company that was headquartered in Kansas City. But I won. I mean, in the end, I won after all of those guys. Well, know. she recognize
0: your love for art and music.
1: Yeah, my wife is... Uh, I mean, obviously she knew who Rochelle is very, was, Well, my, sure. my, my, my wife was uh, an actress in college. She did dinner theater in Philadelphia She did things like Tiffany Addict here in Kansas City. Before she left the Philadelphia, New Jersey area, she was in the Princeton Community Players, uh, which was a very famous community theater back then, and it had very famous people. One of them was Michael Snesel. He was a two-time Daytime Academy Award winner for One Life to Live. He was the lead writer. And he brought Rochelle into New York and she was on one life to live.
0: She told that story on for here.
1: a relatively short period of time. And she told us why she kind of didn't get an extended. Well, know. it was the woman who was the lead. Yeah, their seniority in politics. If you look at those two timing. back in the day, they look very much alike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what happened what is I said. got promoted to Kansas City, Missouri, in uh, December of 1980. We moved here in 81. And uh, basically, oh, so you
0: didn't really that choose Kansas City.
1: No, I got promoted here. Oh, I was a pharmaceutical rep in New Jersey for four years and luckily I did very well in a very short period of time and I got the opportunity to get promoted and obviously Rochelle came with me we've loved it here ever since but that ruined her one life to live career and her community theater uh, you know and when she would play in those dinner theaters but then she came out here and she did dinner theater out here for a short period of time mm-hmm. and then you know like every, we, we decided to have children and she was a I mean, she was 28 when uh, the first child was born, Ryan, and 33 when the second one was born. So, you know, we were not young parents back in the day. That was pretty old in mm-hmm. the early 80s, you know, in the mid-80s, that we were pretty old, you know, to have children.
0: You guys have such a solid family.
1: Um, we have great kids. We have great children.
0: You really do. Well, you guys are really good people. Thank you. You know, um, I always say that about Tim over here. You know, Tim's a great guy. And... Um, him and his wife have been together forever, and they just they have three really great kids. And it just seems that, you know... That's great. That Gene gets passed down somehow. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I asked Rochelle when she was on the podcast. I asked her this question directly. We did not explore it. And we can if you want to, Norm. But uh, I said, you know, you guys seem to have such an amazing relationship. And it's been going on for quite some time, obviously. What's the secret? And the way she said it was... Um, was noteworthy. She said, "Communication."
1: Yeah, you know, uh, you d- you don't want to sit here and like say to the public something like, "Oh, you know, we get along so well and we never argue." And uh, Rochelle is. Uh, I'm just going to tell you, uh, Rochelle Craig, a uh, uh, Rochelle Muirtor Craig. Mm-hmm. I've never met anybody like her. You, you know, I know a lot of ladies, a lot of women, a lot of you know wives. You know, they're friends of ours. Rochelle is uh, an incredibly creative human being uh, she plans uh, things that nobody else would ever even consider planning uh, every you know she works hard to make sure that things are done right I remember years ago I don't know what the experience is today but she was called one take Rochelle she would prepare for the t- for the TV commercials and usually unless there was maybe a you know, maybe she was uh, mic'd wrong or mm-hmm. there were sound issues or whatever, the lights, something. But nor- normally, you know, you never would say, God, I wish she would have been more prepared, Rochelle. I don't ever remember that being said to her. Right. She was, pro- She's pro- a professional. Yes. She's professionally prepared. Uh, she was a great daughter. Uh, you know, a great. she's a great sister. She's an incredible mom. She's a, she's a great wife. Uh, there's just, I can't even think of somebody that doesn't like her. And that's, you think about that. I don't know of anybody that just really dislikes this woman.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, she just cares about people, uh, probably you know to a fault. And I think that uh, when you're with somebody and you and we do, you know you have your ups and your downs, like losing a job or you know so, you know things happen, uh, you know she just she's always there for you. I, I you know she just never gives up. She just and in in life, you know people are positive and people are negative. She leans always to, what's, what can we find positive in this happening if it's bad? But what did we learn from this? I've just never been around anybody like that. I, I don't know how else to explain it. She's just that kind of person. You can
0: feel her, her uh, how genuine she is. Um, and that's I me mean, knowing her a long time. But, and I've seen it with people she's only met once. You know, or maybe doesn't have as much exposure with you know. Tim does a lot of work with her too, yeah. but not as much exposure as me. And you can just, she's uh,
1: just authentically genuine, which is kind of a double. Yeah. Head, and when but, people uh, like <clears throat> yesterday dinner, somebody came up to the table and said something like, "Aren't you Rochelle from Carpet Corner?" And then uh, during the show last night at the Midland Theater. Uh, Brian Culbertson and his incredible band uh, two women approached her uh, and said aren't you Rochelle from Carpet Corner she never acts like frustrated or she always stops she'll greet them she'll, she thanks them for recognizing her I mean I've never ever not seen her act that way even the, where sometimes it's like this is not the time that I can have a conversation with you but right. she tries so hard to go out of her way to not offend Can I tell you one carpet corner story? Please. Real quick?
0: Tell me three or four.
1: Okay, listen to this one. so 2017, we had a wonderful, wonderful dog. Her name was Marley. Mm -hmm. Marley was in uh, commercials. I remember Marley. In the house at Nottingham Forest. And Marley was a wonderful dog. And we got her when she was maybe four and a half years old. We did not think she was that old. We thought she was two, but she was four and a half. And unfortunately, she died at 10. She had Crohn's disease. And losing her was, I mean, that was we've lost dogs before, but this, this dog was like, I had a really hard time losing this dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used to go to Las Vegas where our, you know, our sons live Mm -hmm. and we would go and Rochelle was able to get the dog on the plane, whatever she had to do to get the dog on the plane. So I I got a Southwest, you know, and I had an A ticket and she had a B ticket and whether you're supposed to hold a seat or not, (laughs) I got in, you know, early and I, I held a seat for her, and when she walked in, she has the dog kind of in the front of her. I call it and come, one of those little baby holder things, uh-huh. and the dog is sitting there <laughs> looking, you know, Marley's a cute dog. Uh-huh. And I yell, and I go, Rochelle, like, here I am. <laughs> and she waves at me, and this couple, I'm standing up because, you know, she has a little bag, and I was going to put it up for her. And this couple right across, we were in row 12, and I hear this woman go, Frank. Frank. Look, look. It's the carpet corner dog. <laughs> and I'm waiting for her to her to say it's the carpet corner lady. It's right. it's Rochelle from Carpet right. Corner. And she says, "Look, it's the carpet corner dog. dog." And I just I just started laughing. So when the when the do, you know when they got, you know, like four or five seats closer, I asked the woman, would you like to pet the carpet corner dog? (laughs) And she never even acknowledged Rochelle. She was like, the carpet corner dog? What's the dog's name? (laughs) It's Marley. Hi, Marley. Carpet corner dog. Can we take a picture of the carpet corner dog? It's like Rochelle didn't even
0: exist. And he's strapped, just for perspective, because it's a podcast. and There's no video on this one. Um, You know, Marley was what? Seven pounds, 10 pounds? Uh, uh,
1: Marley, yeah, Marley was probably a, a 12-pound dog. Okay, yeah. ten, well, yeah. and strapped to her yeah, chest yeah, yeah, yeah. in a, a baby a carrier. A 10 to 12-pound dog, yeah. <laughs> in a baby carrier, yeah, yeah, though. Yeah. yeah,
0: that was ridiculous.
1: <laughs> <In the> <laughs> I mean, and even now, uh, like, everywhere we go, if somebody recognizes her, they say... Is that your dog in the commercial? And it really makes me realize having the dog in that commercial is important. Oh, very important. I think it's important. Very important. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, there's a few times we
0: shot where we've had to reuse old footage of the dog just because she couldn't be there. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, because they think that's your dog.
1: Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, I've watched Rochelle from the hairstyles of the 80s. -hmm. And Rochelle always, as you know, dresses very conservatively. Uh, you know she she loved, she just loves doing it. Yeah, she. I, I told her to. She's. I think she's part of Kansas City television history.
0: Oh, most. And, I, and if
1: that helps, Carpet Corner, fantastic.
0: One hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I I think I told her this, and I I know I've told Tim and other people, but I was in a uh, called a business pitch, and when the person saw that we handled Carpet Corner, and he was a little bit younger than me, mm-hmm. he lit up. I watched her as a kid, I had the biggest crush on her. He knew a lot about her. Yeah. Let's just say that. Not too much to where it was, you know, a little creepy, but he knew about this this woman. He didn't you know really know her full name and all that. But I mean, yeah, she goes.
1: Well, we she has had people, I've only heard it maybe once or twice, but she's told me maybe ten times, young women. That she taught at Resurrection Church, like Sunday school type stuff, Mm -hmm. or people young women who remember her when they were growing up. Their daughter's name is Rochelle because Because of of Rochelle.
0: She told me a story. She met a woman at the grocery store. The woman heard her call out your wife's name, Rochelle, and the other woman stopped her and said, Are you Rochelle from? She goes, Yeah. She goes, That's how I got my name.
1: Yeah. I think (laughs) I named me. Actually, (laughs) I think I was there for that one. Were you? Yeah, I remember that one. I remember that. This has
0: to be a blast for you.
1: Oh God, yeah. I
0: mean, because you don't have to.
1: Yeah, you don't have to answer the questions. Yeah, like or somebody. Well, then I have saying like, do you own Carpet Corner? Right, right, right. If I really don't like the person, I go, yeah, I do. (laughs) No, I, I I never, I've never said that, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a very good ride for her. Uh, I think, I think she enjoys it. I think that she manages it properly. You know, I mean, she, she, she does it respectfully. You know, she handles herself publicly in a very respectful manner. Class act, yeah. 1,000%. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, I always tell people, as cool as you would want her to be in person, even better. Um, and you two as a couple are really amazing. Yeah. And, you know, when I asked her about that, like I said, she said, it's communication. Um, and I think she brought up faith, religion. You had mentioned earlier you're, meth- you're now Methodist, but it sounded like you grew up Catholic,
1: yeah, I'm, I'll be very—I'm I'm going Do to be—
0: you i am always curious—not um, always curious. A lot of times on this podcast, faith comes up. Right. When I ask someone, you know, what's your grounding tool or what's this, what's that, they'll bring faith into it, um, and that's curious to me.
1: Yeah. Well, if I could share with you, you know, I'm just going to be as candid as I can. Mm-hmm. I mean, stop me if I go, you know, off on the wrong—you uh, know, the wrong road, but growing up— uh, because my father was divorced, uh, he was told uh, by the Catholic Church in Springfield, Pennsylvania, St. Francis of Assisi School. Uh, it was right in back of uh, or in front of my high school, Springfield High School. And uh, my father was discommunicated. Or what's the word? The word? I, I, you, it, discommunicated? You didn't or, even.
0: I mean, you answered my question in that first yeah. couple of My father words. was not allowed in the church. Yeah, my parents were divorced as well. Yeah.
1: St. Therese. Yeah. Which my is where father to had Grace. to get permission yeah. My father had to get permission to get remarried. Uh no, uh to attend my my sister's baptism because mm-hmm. I I was baptized in Philadelphia and this was the, you know, the suburbs. He had it they they he had to get written permission just mm-hmm. to be present for her for her being baptized. Yeah. Uh which I you know, I I don't think I understood those kinds of things as a child. But uh I went to uh Sunday school and uh I uh, went to catechism class Rochelle was 12 years of uh, Catholic you know schooling mm-hmm. Catholic high school she she's we're so old that you know back when she went to high school one side of the school was for boys and one side of the school was for girls I mean you know that was a, mm-hmm. the high school was split right. in half Cardinal O'Hara high School maybe five miles from where I went to high school which was uh, Springfield and uh, I you know I grew up in a uh, you know, public school system. The public school system today in that community and back in the day, blue ribbon all the way, top notch. Again, blessed to have grown up where I, where I grew up. Just blessed uh, because my mother and father did not go to church. My mother would occasionally go to the Armenian church in Philadelphia. Los Angeles and Philadelphia have two of the largest Armenian populations in the country, as far as cities, and. Uh, I, you know, I used to uh, get involved with the uh, Armenian church and things like that. And what
0: religion is that part of my ignorance?
1: Uh, I don't know. I should. Okay. I mean, I'm embarrassed that I can't tell you okay. that. Uh, I mean, very close to like a Catholic type of a okay. religion. Okay, but it's their
0: own their yes. own Armenian version of it. Yeah, and the, I mean,
1: and the Armenian priests would speak in Armenian, which meant I, I couldn't really relate to that. Okay. But I'm admitting to you that uh, Rochelle's parents, uh, as much as you know, Catholics, they grew up going to Catholic schools and things. They weren't really that religious. And I think when Rochelle and I moved to New Jersey, and then we moved to Lenexa, Kansas, and eventually Open Park, we were in need. You know, we were really in need of a church. So we started going to like the a, a Catholic church in Lenexa. Based on the, the way the boundaries changed, we went to three Catholic churches in Overland Park. Area, and then as maybe it was 1999, we had met some close friends that moved into the neighborhood. They're our closest friends today, and they went to a Methodist church, and they would take us to like Christmas Eve service at their Methodist church, and we were just blown away. You know, uh, going to mass versus going to service is there's, you know, we're we're all you know, uh, you know, moving towards and. You know, we want to be working with the same God, but I'm just saying the Methodist Church really intrigued Rochelle and I. We liked it. And then as time went on, uh, we met Adam Hamilton at Resurrection Church. Today, I manage a ministry at the church. You know, I manage the job search ministry, men and women who are unemployed. I help them. You know, I have a a group that I've put together. We help them find employment. 27 people this year we've helped. Last year it was 26. Wow. But uh, there's, to me, there's something about going to um, Resurrection. I really get involved with the music. Uh, I like the music. And something happened to me. It happened on Christmas Eve 2017. I'll, can I share it real quick? Please, we have plenty. To- so it's, it's, uh, it's Christmas Eve service and it's the midnight service that we used to go to. And it's crowded. It's big time crowded. And, you know, they, 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 everybody lights, you know, the candle mm-hmm. and all the candles are out there. And then he always ends the sermon in such a unique and special way. And uh, I remember, uh, again, it was 2017. So I had to be 63 years old, 2017. So I, almost, I almost said mass ended, but it's, it wasn't mass. Service ended. And everybody was getting up and I just sat at the, I just sat at my seat. And this is the only time Michael this has ever happened in my life. And I'm telling you like it this is the only time this has ever happened in my entire life. I felt that I I felt that God touched me. I mean, I actually felt you know, do not get up. I'm still I'm still, you know, talking I'm still talking with you, Norman. And my wife looked at me and she goes, "What is wrong with you?" We're going to be late because we were going to this midnight thing. And she goes, we're going to be late now. And I said, Rochelle, I said, I feel like I've been touched. You know, like she goes, what are you talking about? And I said, no, I said, God just told me that I have been so blessed, you know, working at the Marion companies all those years. And, you know, really at a young age, you know, doing well, mm-hmm. I've been blessed. I've been asked to serve. And when I tell you that Rochelle looked at me like I was like I needed help, she was gonna she was gonna like take me to the emergency room, like I had been possessed. So the very next week, you know, I she said I was acting strange. I went over to Resurrection Church with my resume, believe it or not. And I said, I'm here, I want to find out if I can volunteer and serve the church in some way. And this woman, her name was Jennifer, I just remember she goes, Okay, Norman, you know, we need parking attendants, especially on the surface that you like so much, Sundays at five, or uh, we, we need some ushers, you know, inside the church for that. And I remember I looked at her, I said, Jennifer, I said, no disrespect, but I was kind of thinking of something else. Not that I refuse those opportunities. Uh-huh. She goes, well, I see you've brought your resume. <laughs> Let me take a look. Uh-huh. And this is the way, this is what happened. So she looked at my resume for what I'm telling you was a very long time. And then all of a sudden her tone changed just a little bit. And She goes, Norman, <laughs> we have a job search club here. I'm going to introduce you to the leader. His name is Matt Dansler. great man, Matt Dansler, who had been running it for maybe years, six, seven years. I had coffee at Panera the following week with a man named Matt Dansler. He wasn't, you know, he was in his late forties at the time, and uh, on every Friday morning, men and women who were unemployed would come, and we, our group would help them find jobs. But, you know, we were my very first meeting. We had fifty-three people. I mean, now we have maybe twelve to fifteen people on a Friday, and and I and I and we we've honed it down into a way where you know we know how to get things done. And Matt met me, and he goes, "Okay, you can be my assistant." So I was Matt Danzler's assistant, 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021, and then uh, he just said, "I just can't do this anymore." He had changed jobs and he was busy, and he had given of himself for a long, long time, and he just said, "I think it's time for me to leave." And I, t- I took over the ministry, and I've been doing it since you know during that time. So all of 2022, and uh, about, what nine now we're nine months into 2023. So I've been there for five years and nine months. And, uh, you know, I bring in guest speakers. I've created relationships with executive recruiters, the Kansas Works group, people representing the state that's out there in Lenexa. Uh, uh, I help people rewrite their resumes, prep for interviews. I negotiate their salaries if they want me to get involved. Uh, I update their LinkedIn profiles. I have resources that can do things like that, too, in many cases better than me. And it's all done for free. Wow. Everything we do is for, we, we just do it.
0: How do people find out about that?
1: Well, usually uh, through the church, of the, Through the church or just through uh, word of mouth, but we have a website that's a fabulous website. It's on linkedin.com. Mm-hmm. So if you go to linkedin.com and in the search, you know, in the search area, mm-hmm. just type in finding a professional job in Kansas City, finding a professional job in Kansas City. So, as soon as you get to the site, if you want to, you know, you ask to join. I have the rights to approve you or disapprove you. There have been uh, people that have joined that are not joining for the right reasons. They're trying to sell something, like Patrick Mahomes t shirts or something. Sure. That's not why we're there. Right. So, uh, if you do violate, you know, the guidelines, I'll take you off the site. But uh, I've seen it grow from a little over 400, and now we're now at 1,049. And you have access to that. We, we job post. And we also post, like, how to write a, an effective cover letter or how to negotiate your salary or how to properly prepare for an interview. You know, we have these postings, too. And then every Friday morning from 830 to 1030, there's always an announcement of where it is. But it's at Resurrection Church, Leewood Campus. We meet, you know we, you know, we meet as a group. And I, and I have anywhere from, let's say, 10 to 16 people on any given Friday. And again, year to date, 27 people have found new jobs. We're so excited about that. Last year, I thought we had a good year. 26 people found jobs through December 31st. So we still have three months to go.
0: You're currently retired, right? Uh,
1: yes and no. I mean, I, I, uh, I spend maybe 10 to 12 hours a week working with resurrection people. I, I, I you volunteer. Know, I, I volunteer. Uh, I'm still a financial advisor at Prevail Innovative Wealth Strategies. Okay. But I will not, under any circumstances, you know, take, a, like, take a resurrection person and try to... I mean, I wouldn't make any money off of a resurrection person.
0: No, no, I guess we're... But, we're I, but I,
1: I, my job with Prevail is to educate people that are maybe your age about the benefits of... Why would a company like Prevail be selected as the number one financial advisement firm in Johnson County? Why, why would something like that happen? We must be doing things right, and, we, and that's not to put down any other company. We just do things differently. We just do. Um, let's we just do things t- differently. T-
0: tell me why they're, why they're better, better.
1: Well, I, I, I think I said it earlier, or maybe it's before we started, but uh, most men and women that you visit that are financial advisors, the oh, person right. did, you, the did, person you work with it manages your money. I was a financial advisor at uh, New York Life. Successful, a partner, I had my own financial firm, Craig Financial Solutions. Who managed your money if you invested with me? I managed like $25 million. I did. But at Prevail, there's a team that manages the money. Three people do it 24 7, and the other nine, uh, they meet as a group twice a week. And uh, the goal there is to how can we statistically, using software, find the best companies at this moment? Hopefully, we can find fund companies that are dividend-paying companies, and how can we look at alternative investments that, during these types of down years, do well, like real estate investing? We just had a real estate investment that I was involved with, and I held it for 13 months. I had to it hold it for a little over a year, so there'd be short-term gains, excuse me, long-term gains, gains versus short-term gains, and, and I, can't, I, I made 29.3%, and so did a lot of other people. Wow. So uh, the the reason I know it's working is because when the market has a kick day, a kick butt day, and as a, let's say the Dow again is up, let's say one percent, uh-huh. so it's up three hundred points, or Nasdaq is up two percent, you know, so maybe then you know maybe the Nasdaq is up uh, you know four or five hundred points, then I know the next day that I'll get a something from Schwab and it'll show that my account had been bought and sold when the market has a great day we sell high. When the market gets killed, we buy low. Mm-hmm. And if that's monitored correctly, using the right software with the right men and women that understand what understands what industries are doing well versus what industries are not doing well, right. uh, we are producing 10, maybe 12, 15% higher returns on average. So without putting anybody else down, that's the reason that Prevail is different. And the concept of alternative investing through real estate uh, we might look at 200 investments before we pick one real estate investment. And those real estate investments that we pick always pay dividends. I have to make a little stop here and say dividends are never guaranteed. And you cannot lead the public to believe that a dividend is guaranteed. But as an example, New York Life and life insurance has never failed to pay a dividend since 1853. Mass Mutual these are companies we use, has never failed to pay an insurance dividend since 1869. So when you have you know a tracker record like that or other funds, but obviously before anybody invests, I always tell them to visit other firms and get to know the people that invest your money. I like the concept of team investing. I just do. I think it's better than a single person investing for you.
0: Is that why you don't have your own firm anymore? Or do you still have your own firm?
1: Well, when I turned turned, uh, 64, I sold Craig Financial Solutions. And there's a way to do that where uh, there's a process of you can continue to be paid for a period of time. But uh, the reason that I Mm -hmm. still work with Prevail is I represent Prevail at like chamber events, rotary events. uh, And and I I, I also then get speaking engagements. I have my Mm -hmm. own consulting firm. So with Prevail, you know, my goal is to help the people that I know. I, I want people to try to their best to make money. Mm-hmm. We also specialize in tax-free income. I don't want this to be a commercial for Prevail, but I know what I'm doing. So about I'd say I work about 10 hours a week at Prevail. I volunteer about 10 to 12 hours a week at Resurrection. And maybe during the week, maybe there's three to five hours a week where there's five different, like, talks that I give. And uh, my the one that is... The biggest one now—it's called my first 100 days in office—and that's how to prepare men and women that when they accept new roles, how to not fail. And I have historic, you know, precedent, and it's a very popular review.
0: That's one thing I want to ask. I'm glad you jogged my memory. You were volunteering that much at Resurrection, even when you were working full time.
1: Oh yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. It was—it was not easy. That's a lot. Yeah, it wasn't easy because I, like this morning, I had a. Uh, and I know how. I mean, I don't know, but. I've seen how active you are on the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how could
0: you fit in a full-time job, a Friday night gig, or a full Friday, what, how long at resurrection? Well, Matt and
1: I would try to meet with people one-on-one, but now, based on the world that I live in, Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesday, I almost always have coffee with somebody at 9 o'clock in the morning, 8.30 in the morning. It's always a 90-minute meeting because I have a process that I follow. I don't force anybody that's new you know, to have to meet with me, but I believe if they're smart, they will. Because I give them, uh, we develop a business strategy for what they need to do to find their next job. There's a process, you know, that we know works. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, like this afternoon, I have a three o'clock meeting, uh, and I always meet at a Panera, because a Panera is a safe place. Mm-hmm. You know, we're meeting in public, and uh, it's not expensive, and there's Paneras everywhere. So when somebody from Lee Summit wants to meet me or Grandview, I meet them at State Line Panera. Mm-hmm. But if somebody lives in uh, you know, Overland Park or Leewood, I meet them at Town Center Panera. And everybody, they all know me there. You uh, know. I want to divert for a, a minute. Sure.
0: How are you seeing, uh, because it's, it's, it's relevant to where we are in the world right now, um, how are you seeing people who are looking for a job now versus in the pre-pandemic? I'll just say it like that.
1: I will tell you 2019, that, uh, you know. Well, there's, it's, it's, it's not Has like, it changed? Yes, it's changed dramatically. Number one, we have uh, invented this new group of men and women. Most of them are younger. And I'm, I'm not here to say like, it's bad that you're younger, but we have a group of men and women who- Graduated in like uh, went to school like in the teens and graduated in twenty or twenty one and when they went to work, many of them did not go to work like you and I went to work. We got up in the morning and we drove to a building. We went through. We met men and women that we sat with besides, worked besides, had orientation and training beside. We, we dressed were not, up like we were going to a funeral. Yeah, we were not. Uh, <laughs> we were not on a in a team meeting or a Zoom meeting or a Microsoft this meeting. Uh, you know, we actually met with people, and we shook hands, and we took notes, and we listened to people speak, and we saw the expression on their face. And uh, now uh, we're, we've, we've created a world uh, that there's something missing, good, bad, or indifferent. For me, it's it's not good. We've created a, wor- a world that I, I have a lot of people that I'm trying to help, and they would say, I say hey, I was able to get that interview for you at H&R Block. Uh, if you the the meeting is 1.30 next Friday, you know at the main H R Block building next to American Century, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, are, uh, you mean it's not a Zoom interview? Or are you saying that I have to go to H and R Block to work? And I, I look at them, and I say to myself, Oh my goodness, this this world has really changed. Uh, or I, I have people I have another talk I call it blue uh, blue green yellow red how to color code people's ability to manage. And it's a, it's a succession planning exercise. If you're blue, blue like blue sky. Is that what this is Yeah, okay. blue sky, the sky. I, I'm probably going off on a wrong tangent, but... No, no. We have men and women today that are in the role of managing people. They are not trained to manage people. They don't understand the concepts of orientation, training, development, Holding people accountable, I'm telling you, Michael, it's bigger. I mean, we can agree or disagree, but I'm telling you, I live it. It's it's not good. And uh, I, one of my talks is to help people understand. Like, I'll give you a quick example. In the late 1990s, Sprint. Uh, was kind of going through a process of going down the drain. Maybe that's inappropriate for me to say. I had a lot of work at Sprint PCS, millions of dollars I think of, we all know that of as consultative a business there. I ran two consulting companies. We did. And uh, for re- I don't know ex- the exact, uh, I'd have to go back and maybe go over my notes, but Sprint Management allowed an entire generation of management to uh, exercise their stock options at a given price, and the, the stock was really not doing that well but there was this window of opportunity and sprint allowed thousands of hundreds maybe uh, maybe a thousand people to leave sprint for a stock price you know that was maybe like $88 a share mm-hmm. an entire generation of management left sprint with millions of dollars in their pocket if somebody doesn't believe me google it And what was left was a generation that got promoted to these positions that was not prepared. They were not mentally, uh, they were not, they did not understand what was going on as the industries were changing. One, I believe that one of the reasons why Sprint eventually failed is they lost a generation of, uh, they lost a generation of management that was in place ready to take them to the next level. Hmm. Now, if you're a Sprint person, you might not agree with me, but if you're a consultant that got all of the work for Sprint because the management wasn't there and Mm -hmm. we won all these consulting contracts? We know because we lived it. And uh, the companies that, uh, you know, uh, if you're a blue person, that means the sky's the limit. You're so good that you're so excellent at what you do that you could change the trajectory of success within a company. If you're color-coded green, which what Marion Laboratories always wanted green men and women, if you're green, as long as you were treated with respect and dignity, you were... You were compensated fairly, and you were given training and development opportunities. Guess what would happen? You'd never leave. You'd be there for 30 years. You'd never leave. Marine had ridiculously low turnover. We, we hired, and we taught, and we trained, and we created an entire 70 to 75% of a corporation that was colored green. Then there was yellow. If you were yellow, that might mean that time has passed you by. Technology has passed you by. Maybe, though, just maybe, you've lost a child. You've just gotten divorced. You have cancer. Your spouse has cancer. Uh, Your your parents died. Something bad happened. Or you just cannot keep up with your job. Men and women who are yellow, color-coded, have to be embraced. And the people that are blue and green will watch how a company embraces people that are color-coded yellow. They need to be embraced so they can improve and do better. If they can't, guess what happens to them? They become red, and Mr. Coffin looked at me one day in the late '80s and said, "If we color code somebody in this organization red, I want them gone." The reason he was telling me, I was the director of human resources, and uh, we just you just can't let people go, or you're going to have an equal opportunity employment mm-hmm. lawsuit or a lawsuit. So, if a, I mean, unless you sexually harassed or you stole it right in front of everybody. And that's how we kept uh, the company with very low turnover. We changed how we recruited, and that's that's the message that I bring to companies today. If you had a senior management team that was all blue, that wouldn't be that good, to tell you the truth. Because blue people are hard to manage. They expect more. You have to compensate them better. And they expect to be propped up. You know, if you had a senior management team that had some blue people in it, but a lot of green, you're gonna do well. And the men and women below them, you know, if I can show a company how to grow, how to properly groom the you know the next generation of leadership <clears throat> through color coding, mm-hmm. that's how Marion did it. That's how the Royals did it in the front office. Do you ever do? And I'm half joking. I mean, I mean, I'm half joking. But do you
0: ever do a lot of green, a little bit of blue, and then maybe one yellow just for
1: a live wire? Everybody, you know, everybody. I mean, don't you have to have a little yellow in no, there? Well, well, everybody would say, well. I want to color code this person 50% blue and 50% green. And it's not that we don't let you do that, but before we ever go through a color coding exercise where we actually hand out, you know, we give you four colors, you know, a magic marker, or we teach you on the computer how to, you know, how to fill that in with a color. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's fun to take out crayons and do it, you know, with people just to have fun, like for a, a luncheon meeting or something. But there's at least a day and a quarter of training that goes into how you prepare. So when, when, when you color code somebody blue, you don't have to put green in there. There's a process that we follow. But when you first start out, if you want to say, well, I think they're a quarter blue and three quarters green, I don't stop a person from doing that. But in the end, you have to make a call. Right. I'll give you a quick example. Sat down with uh, the Royals in the late 80s, and uh, I worked for Ewing Kaufman. I did some work with the Royals. And uh, we color coded the starting lineup for the Royals. And uh, who who might what, what do you think George Brett's color code was? Green, blue. Okay, he was the top third baseman in the American League. Mike Schmidt was the top third baseman in the National League. Philadelphia Phillies, right? I'm from Philly. Okay. I know this stuff. And uh, George Brett had won three uh, batting titles and three. You know, he had hit by the time he retired, 300 home runs. He had he had won like seven division titles, two pennants, and one World Series, kind of like Mike Schmidt. And uh, but w- if you had an entire team of blue people, you'd fail, because blue people want to be compensated better than anybody else at their position. They want to always be publicly patted on the back. And if you have a you need some people that are green in that you know in that lineup or green in that dugout, people that just come to work, don't you know look for the limelight, just get the job done every day. Hmm. And when you have a team of green with the blue blues, you're probably going to win a pennant, maybe get to the World Series.
0: And do they still use this model?
1: I don't know. I, I really, but we did uh, back in the 80s and early 90s. And uh, anybody that knows me, uh, and if they want me to work with them, the first thing that we do is I teach them how to color code an organization. And the real problem is when the person that you're talking to is yellow or red. We have men and women that are running companies in this city all over the country that should not be running those companies. Guess who will make the best bosses eventually? Yeah. Let's say that you're running a restaurant today. Okay. But you started 30 years ago as a bus person, a bus boy, a bus person. Uh-huh. You started bussing tables, and slowly but surely, you learned every role. You at one time, you know, managed mm-hmm. uh, the reservation system. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like my son and nightclubs in Las mm-hmm. Vegas. He's run the biggest nightclubs in Las Vegas mm-hmm. that you could ever imagine, Right, 20 years in Las Vegas. And there's nothing that he can't do. But the reason is there's never a job. There's not one job he didn't do. Right, And he, he learned the hard way. And he had to, you had to do well to keep getting promoted up the chain of command. Mm-hmm. And when he uh, you know, became the general manager of excess at the Encore at Wynn, mm-hmm. or when he ran Chaos, the big nightclub at the Palms before mm-hmm. they closed it down, He had done every job, so when he would hire people or when he would help be involved in their training, he remembered what it would be like to be that kid Mm -hmm. who someday wanted to be the person who sold the thousand dollar table, Mm -hmm. you know, that you could sit at, or
0: launching the biggest club in Las Vegas, which what what your son was doing. That that
1: was chaos. K A O S. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that that that's yeah what chaos was. in the name of the club. Not yeah. <laughs> no, I said because no, a... everybody goes. What do you mean? Well, that, yeah, they called it. Chaos. <laughs> it was good chaos, <laughs> but, it was a, but it was also it, the name of the, the club. club. <laughs> but guess what happened? COVID shut it down because the investors that owned all of the Palm properties around the world, you know, basically said we need to go with one where it, you know they're not going to be shut down like this for, in Las Vegas. So that's right. What started out to be this wonderful opportunity, just didn't end up that way.
0: And you had a few people sell too. But if you think about
1: like the men and women that I know that manage restaurants, even like, you know, like Michael Forbes, you know, if you just spend any time with him, he started from nothing. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, the guy is a brilliant owner, restaurateur. you know, he just really is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how, that's how, like the men and women or the, let's say the, the, uh, professional football, you know, your minor leagues is college. In baseball, your minor leagues might be, you know, double-A, AA, triple-A. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people that learned, you know, from the lowest level and worked their way up and finally broke in in their early or mid-20s, you know, the, and the ones that make it, they didn't, they didn't just make it. I mean, for every Ken Griffey Jr. or Robin Yont or George Brett, you know, there were hundreds and thousands that, you know, spent four years in the minor leagues. Mike Schmidt spent four years in playing baseball uh, in Ohio and then he spent two years in the minor leagues be- before he became a Philly. So his career, I think, was cut short for the guys that started when they were nineteen or twenty, and he started at twenty-four. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also a parallel
0: there because there's a lot of uh, ballers that uh, take ballet.
1: Hey, uh, they really are. I'm trying to think of the Heisman there, Award winner that, uh, not Bo Jackson, but uh, I have a mental blank going, but. He he, 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 bet he was in ballet for two years.
0: Yeah, I just recently watched the Eagles game, uh, what was that, two weeks ago. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, can't, well, I won't remember the name of the player, but they had mentioned he started taking ballet lessons in the offseason. For so balance. Well, so they um, they were referring to the way he caught the ball, but they're saying help him turn his body yeah. and his head yeah. so that he could do that and still keep his eyes yeah in one place, but yet keep his shoulders and his hips in another yeah. place.
1: If you YouTube, I just remember the name, Herschel Walker. Uh-huh. If you YouTube yeah. Herschel Walker Ballet, uh, anybody listening, if they were to do it, would be in shock to see uh, Herschel Walker in tights uh, as a ballet dancer.
0: So was that a thing at all when you were younger back in the 60s, 70s? Was that a thing at all, Foot major, you know, NFL players or not to my knowledge.
1: going into dance to learn? No, not to my knowledge. In fact, unfortunately, and again, not to be a jerk or anything. It was
0: much more of a, we, of I, a
1: roughneck sport. Well, I was, it's I was the wrong called, word. I was called a sissy. You know, when I was, I was, okay, I was, I yeah, was called sure, a sissy. That's right. You, know? you said that. I mean, and you uh, said that. I don't, I don't believe. Those I are two competing crowds I just then. don't believe that today, if a young man... Uh, started to dance. I I just don't think that that way he would be called that name right. in the world that we live in today. Right. I just don't think. I think everybody would offer that person the the right and the honor of doing what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: Well, we got here from my question about religion.
1: <laughs> Sorry about that. No,
0: no, no. This is the best part of the podcast is that we can do this um, because I think that's how we learn things that we normally wouldn't learn or hear. Um, but you you went from. Methodist, uh, you went from Catholic well, to yeah, Methodist I'm, because it spoke to you.
1: Yes, it did and uh, the way that I, I, my friends call me a Methodic you know, he's Catholic <laughs> and he became a Methodist so I'm a Methodic <laughs> I got a couple of good ones for you there That's a, <laughs> that one. Uh, Adam Hamilton uh, is a famous you know, uh, pastor at Resurrection Church Uh, Resurrection Church, to my knowledge, is the largest Methodist church in the United States. You know, you you either like them or you don't like them. You know, know, everybody, you have to take a stand, you know, when you're the head pastor of something. Uh, I like the fact that when I go to church, whether I agree with him or disagree with him, the amount of work and research that he puts into every sermon. And somewhere in the middle of the sermon, I'm thinking to myself, where are we going with this sermon? He has opened up so many doors and I'm, my mind is like it's so expanded, and this man has the talent. Like in the last five minutes of a sermon, he can bring he can bring all of those doors to one door, and, and he can shut it. And at the end, you've gotten the meaning of what he was trying to say. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. He's gifted. Uh, he's story storytelling. He, but he 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 is he's a he a gift. I'm of not downplaying telling. it. No, mean, no no no. I just think he's gifted, and then he surrounded himself with other men and women. You know, we have a Korean minister, we have African American ministers, uh, male and female, you know, we have uh, people that grow up in a Muslim. Do you have female ministers? Oh yes, there's there's female ministers over there and I now report to a female minister. And she's Korean. You know, and she's the person that I my, my ministry reports the to. The minister her. can get married, yes. Oh yes. Okay. Oh, definitely, yes. And uh, the church they say is oh it's too big. Well, it's so big, but it has so many small groups. I mean, if, if you need help, like I, I meet <coughs> with men and women and they'll say to me, and it's, it's always incredibly troubling because I have people that like will start to cry and we're at Panera and it's, you know, like I want to protect them. Uh-huh. But I've had several people over the last close to six years say, like since COVID, I, I, I'm now an alcoholic or since COVID uh, or since this operation and then COVID struck, I'm, I'm now addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. And these are not drug addict people. And these are not, you know, people that would just normally be at the bar every day. They're, you know, circumstances has created something in their life. And now you're dealing with it. Well, I am not trained for those two issues. Or somebody's just lost their husband suddenly to an accident. Or they, uh, a child has died of cancer. I, I face these things. I'm surrounded by men and women and ministries where I can pick up the phone, or I can even take the person to the church, and my, I can make a phone call and I can make an introduction right like from Panera, and I can get them the help that they need. How many other places are there in the community where you know once I have enough background about church capabilities and they have all these brochures and we have meetings where we learn about these things, Michael? It, it's it. I just think it's wonderful to have a church. I have a guy right now that's broke, just peered the end broke, and he's married, and his wife lost her job too. They're broke. Uh, I mentioned it to somebody that I'm working with, and uh, we have, we're providing the family now. Uh, it's it's not forever. Three months of groceries. They can come shopping every week for three months.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I guess they could shop for two weeks, but I mean, they they have three months of the ability to, you know, to you to buy, and it's not, and you could buy like hamburger and meat and stuff, and chicken and right. stuff like that. But uh, uh, that means that that during those three months they have maybe money that they do have from whatever, wherever they're getting it, maybe to pay the electric bill, or the heating bill, or the get, put gas in the car. The, these are the kind of subtle things that happen at different churches that I have a lot of I have a lot of regard
0: for. Or if nothing else, you're taking one of the biggest stressors that could exist, and how do I feed myself when I can't? Yeah, taking and, that and off their a, plate.
1: It, it's. I just don't think a lot of people in the greater Kansas City area. area well, maybe they do think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are having these issues. I, I'm, I've, I've worked with some people that are, I'm even talking senior executive type people, making well over $100,000 a year. I've had people that work with me for a year and a half. One worked 19 months before he got another job. And the job that he got was a lower, kind of a lower level job. And he told me that he was very upset with uh, his starting salary. So we reviewed the offer letter that he got, and I sat. Down, I'm a trained negotiator, so I sat down with him for maybe two hours, and I took him through different scenarios. Now I'm not saying I'm successful all of the time. A trained job negotiator? Yeah. Well, I, I'm. I'm just a trained negotiator. Uh, I, I. I. was trained, you know, like when, like when Marion was going to have a union, maybe start in the mm-hmm. night. I'm I'm a trained negotiator. Okay. But I'm. I'm really good with salary negotiations and closing deals with major companies. I'm usually. I have a history of doing that. So his starting salary went from 110 and by the time we got done he was making 132. His car allowance was upped from 375 a month to $500 a month. Add all of that up mm-hmm. and that that you know so I do keep records I'm I'm 83% successful. So 17% of the time I fail. If somebody comes to me and we actually go through an exercise, wow. but 83% of the time we get more money. That's and more good. money could mean, uh, gee, my benefits don't start for 90 days. Well, we get, we get a signing bonus, so they, the benefits are paid, but they're just paid through a signing bonus. What's your or, best
0: or, success story?
1: Uh, the be, I think the best success story, believe it or not, was the one I just told you, where the guy got $22,000 more plus mm-hmm. $125 more a month times 12. And then there's been a, a, a couple of uh, situations where, uh, you know, somebody like a, a recruiter would call and the person's just desperate for a job. And the recruiter calls and says, that we're only offering $36 an hour. If, if you're telling me right now, you know, that you're not going to accept $36 an hour, then unfortunately, you know, I can't pursue you. So I just tell the person when, in moments like that, I go, do not react because you want to. Pause. Silence is a wonderful thing when it comes to negotiation. Silence. And I say, well, you know, considering I have 31 years of experience and 17 of them are with this company and the last, you know, uh, 16 are with uh, Sprint PCS and T-Mobile and I've done everything that you've done and also taught and trained it, I would like to ask, what other opportunities might be out there with somebody with my level experience that could help you cross over with some of these younger people or people that would be willing to accept that kind of money. And I just said, and after you say that, if you open your mouth, you lose. You just shut up. And in many cases that person goes, Well now that you put it that way, we are we are going to need some supervisory support or I'm sorry we can't help you. And the person says, well that's fine. Uh, if, if you ever need somebody that has my level of expertise, I'm certainly willing to negotiate, but not for that low of money. Um, I'm certainly worth that much more. Sometimes they get call, calls back, Michael. Sometimes the person will say, well, you know, now that you put it that way, there is another role, and the, uh, the upper level goes to $52 an hour. And they wind up getting – and I train people to, you know, to go to glassdoor.com or go to the Internet and to research salary ranges – you know, in some states like New York and California, the range has to be part of the uh, the job description. So, if a job description is like, I'll give you a quick one. The job says, like, it's a New York New York City job, and it says starting salary sixty thousand, maximum salary one hundred thousand. So, somebody that's brand new to the job with maybe not a lot of experience would get low, lowballed. So, I teach a person compensation theory. You add sixty and a hundred. What do you get? You get 160000 divided by two. The midpoint is 80000 If you have five to seven years of experience, you should probably be near midpoint. So when a person says, what what, what do you want to make? I, well, I know the midpoint of this job is $80,000. I have 15 years of experience. I should be in the upper third quadrant. So I expect eighty-five dollars to $92,000 a year. It's kind of hard to argue with that because the mathematics right. are there once I teach people to, to understand the math of first quadrant, midpoint, you know, uh, like third quadrant, fourth quadrant, uh, they, they become much, they become much more experienced and they don't fall, uh, you know, when a person simply says, so how much money, uh, would you be willing to make to even meet, talk to me about this job? Well, how about if you tell me what the range of the salary is before, how can I give you a, a number until you until you tell me what the range is? The person's You know, especially if they're an inexperienced recruiter, they're they're forced to give the information. Mm -hmm. And they can start off from a higher negotiation, you know, uh, stage. And then we talk about what are are other things. You know, if a person offers you immediate uh, benefits, not waiting 90 days, and you have eye care benefits, dental benefits, medical benefits, you have a prescription card program, but they're going to offer you $7,000 less than this other company, And they don't have good benefits. Sometimes if we could just negotiate a little bit more, it's better to accept the job that looks like it it pays lesser. Mm -hmm. Or if you can get in writing, we'll give you a salary review, not a review, a, a performance and salary review in writing after six months. These are the subtle things that people don't, they're not trained to do. So if you sit down with somebody that knows how to do this, you know, good things normally happen.
0: And you take a commission based off of the salary they're going to be making? I make
1: nothing. I'm free. I sh- I mean, honestly. Are you just doing this? This is the resurrection work that I do. Oh, this I- is the, the work that I do at resurrection. Now, if you come to me and say, hey, Norm, uh, I have a job, and I would you help me fill it? Well, then I, you have to pay me a fee. Right. But I'm not charging the person that gets the job. I'm charging you. I become your executive recruiter. And my fee is normally based on the job and the amount of work that I have to do. It's between eighteen and twenty five. But still, for resurrection, you're not charging. The, no, I, the, I just won't do that. The Corporation. I, I, Good. I, I don't do that. In fact, I have a kind of like an unwritten rule. Uh, I don't want to be the guy that makes money on the side off of the people that I'm trying to volunteer to mm-hmm. help. I, I I actually think if I approach them, <laughs> they might you know say maybe you could do it for this job or that job, but. I just don't do that. I, mm. I don't I don't get involved that way. That's one of the reasons why this consulting company that I have. I, I mean if a resurrection person gets a job, you know, I work it, I work it through resurrection, I don't work it through my consulting firm. And most of the work that I do with my consulting firm, I'm not there's not too many people at resurrection that quite candidly have the background right, right. You know, or the or the skill sets. Now if a person says to me, I have a left behind 401k, you do not want to have a left behind 401k. I mean, I can give you three immediate re- reasons that you want to move it into an IRA. Uh, and if they say, well, I want to, can I talk to somebody from Prevail? I go, yeah, I'll make an introduction. Uh, and I say, but I also think, you know, if you, if you like this Edward Jones person or this Morgan Stanley person or this, you know, uh, a Merrill person from the bank, uh, that's fine. But uh, I think, you know, I think once you meet with whoever you meet with, you'll know who to choose. And I'm implying Prevail. Because ninety percent of the time they choose Prevail,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: I don't get compensated for their business. Right. Now Prevail might say, "Hey, you brought in this, all this business from a consulting contract standpoint; they might help me out." But I'm not making specifically any money off of that person's specific business, you know. And that's the way I try to be an honest person. Have you heard the chatter about artificial intelligence uh, oh, influencing finance? Yeah. Oh my. And goodness. banking. Well, not only in banking, but when I get cover letters or when I look at resumes, I can tell within twenty seconds that that person that's a that's a bot that wrote that uh, that the people uh, you know that I, that I help you know train because I was an adjunct professor at Webster University for mm-hmm. twenty seven years I can show them you know that the paper you know that on leadership that you asked somebody to submit they didn't write that paper they, there's a whole issue about that now, right with, no I know with the bots today involving financial services, <clears throat> my view is if you're looking for short-term results, some of those uh, financial bots do work. But if you're looking to create a strategic portfolio, a portfolio that has to be changed constantly because of the chaos in the markets, that'll get you in more trouble than it will help you.
0: Aren't they? And I don't know your industry, um, but aren't they using it more on the um, admin side? Yes, I, I would just to save that. time. And yeah. I mean, I think obviously, it's cutting a job. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah. yeah, but it's not. It's not. One hundred percent autonomously making the decision. Yet for the end user, is it?
1: No. I, Maybe, I, I in mean, some cases it, it, it could, is. It could describe a solution, or sure, describe of course it can. Uh, the multitude of solutions and come up with statistical analysis of like this would be a twenty nine percent proper decision. This would be a thirty eight percent proper decision. A decision making process model. Uh, I'm just telling you, it's it's not easy. You got to mm. be brilliant to create these. And, uh, I still think well, that, that that's uh, what AI lacks is creativity. Yeah. I, I, I just think that, uh, you know, some people might want to use those opinion. along with their own judgment uh-huh. and with all of the information in front of you, you ultimately then make the best possible decision that you can. Mm-hmm. But I think to only make it on, make a decision based on artificial intelligence or that software, I, yeah. I honestly no, that, that, think that, that that will come and bite you.
0: That would be ridiculous at this yeah, point.
1: I think it would bite you.
0: Um, yeah, that'd be absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> But it, it's something that is, for whatever reason, it's seems to be heavy in finance in the finance sector.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's being looked at very carefully. But also remember, the United States government and the, and uh, you know the, the men and women that uh, are in the regulatory are also looking at this very carefully too. Oh, so it doesn't, yeah. So it doesn't get inappropriately abused. as, they, as we had better <laughs> as we had better be doing. Yeah. Hey, I just wanted to know. Uh, I don't know how much time we have left, but as much
0: time as you want.
1: Well, I was going to say there's one story that because it, uh, his uh, d- his 50th anniversary of him dying was just uh, uh, September 20th, I, I I wanted to I I can't tell you the amount of respect that I had for this man because Rochelle and I knew him. Who is it? Jim Croce. I wanted to know if I could tell you my Jim Croce. Yeah, story. please. So Jim Croce graduated from Upper Darby High School, where I student taught. Uh, it was it's the first suburb. Uh, southwest of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, Jim Croce graduated in 1960. He married a woman named Ingrid. Uh, She went to Springfield High School. She graduated in 1962, and they got married. And uh, Jim Croce went to Villanova University. And uh, he uh, eventually, uh, through meeting Tommy West, Uh, cashman and west new york city tommy west was uh his record producer with terry cashman and uh, he was signed uh, to his first record contract by maddie the humdinger singer i got a i got a humdinger story for you and uh for reasons that you know he he tried to make it and he wound up playing in the outskirts of the philadelphia suburbs like media pennsylvania Swarthmore College, three miles from where I live. Very famous liberal college, Swarthmore. Very famous. Like one of the top liberal colleges still in the United States. He would play at uh, these different places. I met Mike Nesmith playing at, uh, in, at Swarthmore. Uh, a former monkey. Okay. He died recently. He, uh, he, he, he wrote Linda Ronstadt's first hit with the Stone Ponies. I know I'm exposing your youngness. <laughs> you too, Tim. But, uh, I do all of this stuff. So. But Jim Croce, you know, started becoming famous. And, uh, you know, the records that, you know, live in my head are Don't Mess Around With Jim, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, mm-hmm. I Have To Say I Love You In A Song, Operator, my, my, my famous, you know, of all songs, and, and really uh, many, many more. And uh, I, for a very short time, was his paper boy, and uh i used to see rochelle and i would see him at some of the area you know places and we thought that this guy's going to become famous like this guy is he was friends with the Geeter with the heater the big boss of the big hot sauce jerry Mm blabin uh you know who became a very close friend of rochelle and myself and uh i was a freshman in temple university it was september of 1973 Rochelle and I had just seen him like two weeks ago at the Main Point Theater in Swarthmore, which was a little club, and him and Maury Mulehausen were playing the guitar. Uh, He he already had a hit or two or three, and here we are seeing him in a very small venue, and uh, Michael Nesmith is playing there too, the former monkey from the Monkeys of 65, or 66, 67, and... uh, you know, we're talking to him, and we're just thinking, like, aren't we something? We're, we know this guy, and we know this... We know Michael Nesmith. He was a monkey on TV. <laughs> and uh, I wake up, uh, whatever morning it was, I think it was like a Monday... I don't know, Thursday morning, Friday morning, and my father hands me the paper, and in the Philadelphia Inquirer, it says, Jim Croce killed in plane crash in Louisiana. And I mean, I just had I just had tears in my eyes. I mean, I just... I just couldn't believe this 30 year old guy who had his life ahead of him. Mm-hmm. He was a star, but hadn't really witnessed the money, you know right. Yet. So I uh, moved three years forward, and I am now uh, a senior at Temple. I, I have to teach uh, at a school for student teaching. It's part of the way my, I can't get my degree in secondary education if I don't. The school does not. Temple just says we don't want you teaching at uh, Upper Derby High School. We don't think it's a good high school. You know, it's just not a school we want you to teach at. And I go, I want to teach at Upper Derby High School. And they said, we said no. So I went to the dean. And for me to go against, you know, the people that I work with, and I went to the dean and I got, this is why I want to teach here. And uh, they had a distributed education program that nobody knows what that means. But I taught uh, kids that were their first choice was not college. It was, you know, to, to learn a skill. And part of what I did is they would, they would have me for five classes. Then they'd go to work. Maybe at 1.30 in the afternoon, they'd work, and they'd make money. But, you know, these were kids that maybe were not right for going to Temple University or Penn or Villanova or the schools surrounding, you know, or the engineering school, Drexel. So, uh, you know, whatever happened when I got to the school, they, they eventually let me teach there. I mean, I won the argument. I told the dean that I was going to do something that would leave a legacy with the school, and this is kind of what he did. <laughs> but, he, but he, he was sold on he was sold on my passion. So when I got to the school, I approached one of the assistant principals that I knew very well from summer camp. He used to be a former Philadelphia Eagle uh, second string quarterback a long time ago. His name his name was uh, Michael Denoya just a great guy. My mother and him were very close friends. I told him I wanted to start a wall and hall of fame. I said, this crazy school that's been here for all these years doesn't have a a hall of fame. I mean, my high school has a hall of fame. Every high school has a hall of fame. Every school has graduates that went on to do great things. And I said, I want to induct, I want Jim Croce, because I had a personal relationship and this was my payback time. I was gonna pay him back. And uh, the school initially said no, no. I got them to say yes. I call Tommy West in New York. He doesn't know who I am. His secretary doesn't treat me very well. And she goes, who is this? Okay. I go, my name is Norman Craig. I want to talk to Tommy West about Jim Croce. He must have been there because he grabs the phone, she says, later. <laughs> I said, who is this? And I said, Mr. West, he goes, call me Tommy. I said, Norman Craig, Upper Darby High School, student teacher, Temple University. He went to Villanova with Jim Croce. Go, what do you want? What kind, what, what kind, how can I help you? And I said... I want to. We want to uh, induct Jim Croce into as the first member posthumously into the Upper Derby High School Hall of Fame. He goes, "What can I do to help? Tell me what you want me to do." <laughs> so he came that day, but he helped me. He called a guy named Rick Trow. We got the actual recording. of I got a name? Like the physical, actual take. You know, with the, the you know with the cellos and bass mm-hmm. and violas. I mean, you know, the string instruments. The actual in the you know, studio mm-hmm. take and we played that for the students and he and then he said, you got to call Matty Singer. I go, who's Matty Singer? He goes, well, he's the guy that signed Croce to his, uh, you know, he was very instrumental in getting his career started along with Terry and me, Terry Cashman and Tommy West and I go, great. He goes, here's his number in New York City. So, I'm getting to the end. No, you're fine. I call, I said, uh, this guy goes, hello? And I go, uh, Mr. Singer? He goes, who is this? You know, and, I go um, well. You don't know me. He goes well. What are you calling me for? I said Jim Croce, and he was silent. And he I go Tommy West told me to call you and that you would be courteous to me and talk to me. He goes well. Don't call me. Don't call me Mister Singer and don't call me Maddie Singer and don't call me Mister Maddie Singer. I'm the Humdinger Singer and don't call me Humdinger Singer. Call me Humdinger. And I'm like. Okay, a lot of rules. Okay, Humdinger. <laughs> he goes, "What are you calling for?" I said, "Well, we are uh, going to in, induct Jim Croce into the Upper Darby High School Hall of Fame, and we're creating a Wall of Fame, and I would, I would, it would be an honor if you would join Tommy West and the school to be part of the, you know, uh, the presentation at an assembly program, and I have the press coming and all that." He goes. So I had to meet him the night before. He took the train down to the Philadelphia train station. And uh, I set him up at a hotel. I had to pick him up early in the morning. And we brought him to Upper Darby High School, uh, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, all the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Daily News. Everybody was there. And it, it turned out to be a big moment. I got pictures. I'll show wow. you. later. And uh, now they just inducted their 46th member. They invited me back last year. Guess who you would know is a member of the Upper Darby High School Hall of Fame. Tina Fay. 2006. Really? She graduated 1996. Tina Fay is in the Upper Darby High School Hall of Fame. And there's other people like a Supreme Court justice or Dr. Jack Ramsey. But you started this. Yes, yeah. I mean the school, I mean, I mean, I don't want to say, I mean, I started it. I mean, I'm the one that got it approved, but I I needed help from a lot of people.
0: And Jim was the first.
1: Yes. And uh and of course, the principal who said no to me, uh, when the you know when the press was there and they were doing a news conference, he, he horned in on everything and took all. I'm telling you, he took all the credit.
0: No, he just took all of the credit.
1: I got a picture of me and the, the uh, and like holding the plaque, and the, the plaque, the, the replica is still used 46 years later, and and you see the guy there like holding holding hold the plaque. Like, You know, it's just just one of those things. You know how you learn in life? Uh Uh-huh. So uh, now, you know, Jim Croce, you know, is on the side of a wall, wall of fame, but he's in the hall of fame. Now, when I was hired by Marion Laboratories back in Philadelphia, I had an interview that I didn't even know I was going to have. I wasn't properly prepared for the interview. And the, the manager that hired me and the regional manager later, like six months later, when I got off to a pretty good start, they said to me, honestly... We were not going to hire you. What was the last question that we asked you, Norman Craig, before the interview was over? I said, the last question you asked me is, in in my young life, what was my proudest accomplishment? And they said, and you just sat there and went off like like a nutcase, like you were possessed about the Hall of Fame at Upper Derby High School and Jim Croce. And when the interview was over, Jerry and I looked at each other and we said, we got to hire this guy. I mean, if he could pull that off, let's give this kid a chance. But your interview sucked. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Your interview sucked. What, why did your interview suck? Because I wasn't properly prepared. I, I didn't know I'd be interviewing with him and Dr. Marvin Hirschfeld. So your doctor. interview was a yellow. I was a yellow. Yeah, but, but
0: your proper. story was a
1: blue. Yeah. Or, I mean a green. Well, they, uh, they were so taken aback. I think they also liked Jim Croce. Now, remember, it's only, it's only like six years or three years after he died. I and mean, uh-huh. he was still, and if you're living in the greater Philadelphia, here, he's still a legend. I mean, he's a legend. Really? Okay. It's 50 years later, and he's sure. a legend. Okay. I mean, they just played the Midnight Special. Uh, that was back in the 70s and 80s. It came on at midnight, and he was the, he hosted the Midnight Special. That was a big deal back in the day. <laughs> you know, the woman who did it the week before was Olivia Newton-John. It was a big deal. <laughs> a big deal.
0: That's your, my, so that's my The journey.
1: interview was awful. Yeah, that but was you, my... That but was your Jim story. Yeah, my Hired. They were, they were just, they go, how did you possibly get the school to agree? How did you get Tommy West to come in? How did you get that production video of I've Got a Name? How did you get the Humdinger singer to come? And, you know, I told him the whole story. And, and I could still pick up the phone until Tommy West died and I could call him. And yeah, he would talk to me. Really? Yeah, he died about a year and a half ago, two years ago. He's on some of Jim's songs. He's the he's the guy playing the piano. He's the piano guy.
0: Well, you had the right people helping you.
1: Just that's like that's the key to life. Uh, that's a Ewan Kaufman. Uh, why am I so successful in what I do, Norman Craig, at, with the Royals and Marion? I have learned to surround myself. He at the moment he said this. He said men. Remember, this was 1986. No knock against women. If right. he was saying it today, he would say men and women. Sure. I have surrounded myself with men and women that can do what I can't do. But Mm -hmm. you know what? I hold them accountable, and you do too. From that one moment in 1986, I have started companies knowing that there are certain things that I can do. I can close new business. I can negotiate and win new business. But there's a lot of things I don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. So what I've done, I've surrounded myself with the people that I can't do what they do. But I hold them accountable for results. Allah, A.K.A. Ewing Marion Coffin. That was the greatest lesson of life that I've ever learned. That was one of the great lessons of Ewing Mar- uh, Marion Coffin. What a great man! You learned a lot from him. I did. I hold him in the utmost esteem of the great men that I've ever met in my life, and the other people that worked with me during those Marion years before me and after me. They will tell you, you know that. I mean, the Royals are still in Kansas City because of Ewing Coffin. The way he constructed everything. It's called it's called Kauffman Stadium for a reason. It used to be Royal Stadium. It's Kauffman Stadium. There, there's a, there's a, Kauff, you know, there's a Kauffman Center. You know, not too far away from here for a reason. Right, right? Yeah. right,
0: right. No, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. When you had your own financial firm, did you have employees?
1: Yes, I had. Uh, Rochelle was my operations manager. Okay. And I I, uh, I hired, uh, maybe there were three to five other representatives that were independent representatives, and on certain cases, based on their expertise and my expertise, we would work together, and we would use different firms, uh, Mass Mutual, Northwestern Mutual, the New York Life Company, you know, companies like that. These were companies that paid dividends and were uh, privately owned. They weren't public companies. I didn't want to be with stock-owned companies.
0: Yeah. Just was curious if you used your um, green, blue,
1: yellow, well, theory there. I, I, I even, I, I, even did that with my clients. You know, as 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 life, as I became more successful, I just couldn't have as many clients as I have. So we color coded the clients, and anybody that you know was a yellow or red, uh, you know, I, I found a way to move them to a, you know maybe to other people. But I, I it just oh, okay. didn't make sense for me to work with them anymore.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So you could find your clients the same way you did yeah I think that that I think if somebody actually learned and spent some time with me you know and learned more about the color coding process it, it's just good for general living and, gen, and just general life
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know uh, but if you're gonna build a company or start your own company you, you better understand the concepts of being blue green yellow or red you really better and everything that goes into it so are you currently a gun for hire well uh, my uh, consulting firm, has been hired by three companies recently to speak. I'm speaking uh, three times in Las Vegas in November. Uh, I, I also. What's work, the name of your firm, Norm? My firm is uh, NJC Consulting, and the website is njc-consulting.com. So I do uh, training and development, I do executive recruiting, and I'm a public speaker. Those are the main things that I do right now.
0: And that's njc-consulting.com. Yes, sir. Okay.
1: And my, uh, my younger son, David, and his wife, Christina, designed it. Okay. Uh, they own a marketing company called Markets or Market, and uh, they are the largest. Uh, David and Christina uh, manage the largest cannabis company website in the United States, and that company happens to be out here, believe it or not, in the Independence, Missouri area.
0: Nice. Yeah. Very but nice. Their
1: brand, the brand of that company is Illicit, and they have five retail establishments in the Kansas City area. Corporation is O X G, but uh, the product name that a lot of people know it's it's just called the Illicit brand, and uh, they're, the website and the and just the way that the product is uh, marketed they they're award, it's an award winning company and an award winning website.
0: That's excellent. Yeah. That's excellent.
1: They gave me a discount on building my website, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. I got a discount. <laughs> I hope so. Um, what else, Norm? Can I tell you one more Ewing Kaufman story? Please. Is that okay? Yeah. So it's 1981. My wife, Rochelle, and I move here in... She moves here in February. I've already been here, but we move into our house in Lenexa, in February of 1981. So now we're cu- coming close to the holidays, you know, the the, the first holidays. We, we don't have children yet. Her parents are sick, as my parents are, that we're not living, you know, in the greater Philadelphia area. Trenton, New Jersey, was where we were living in a suburb 50 miles from Philly, so that's the greater Philadelphia area when I was a pharmaceutical representative. And uh, my father-in-law calls me. His name is Lou. And Lou would say, Norm! Lou here. How's the Pondo? Meaning Ponderosa. He thought we had a big backyard. He goes, how's the Pondo? (laughs) I go, Pondo's doing great, Lou. Ponderosa's looking good, man. He goes, I don't have any place for the horses, but the Pondo's doing really well. Uh, That's the kind of guy he was. Uh, One day, I got to tell you a quick Lou story. So malpropisms is a word that we used to discuss. There was a guy named Norm Crosby. Uh, Norm Norm Crosby. He He was a... comedian. And he would say things with and not mean that you know that, that the words weren't right. So like my father-in-law would call me up and he'd go uh, so he goes, uh, oh, hey we watched that uh, movie last night. I don't know if you and Rochelle have watched it. It's a really old one. It was Burt Lancaster Donna Reed. Yeah. Well, i go, which one? He goes, from here to attorney. i go, I think you mean from here to eternity. Right? Or he'd say, he'd go, no plum intended. i go, Lou, that's no pun intended. You know, you think I'm I'm kidding. I am not kidding. Uh And he he one day I got promoted at Marion and I was very excited. Rochelle's, I want to tell my parents that you got promoted and all this extra money we're gonna make. And he so he he goes, Norm, congratulations. You have now reached the pinnacle of your success. (laughs) And Rochelle, I go, he meant that. The pinnacle. You have reached the pinnacle of your existence. <laughs> but the all time award winner, the all time award winner, many years ago when he was alive, it was all over the news Indonesia had a tsunami. Mm-hmm. It was horrible, and many people were killed. Okay. <laughs> Again, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh-huh. And uh, he calls me up and he goes, Are you watching the news? And I go, Yeah. He goes, what do you think about that salami in Indonesia? <laughs> and I go. He just said salami. Salami, and he meant it.
0: What was this guy's story?
1: I, I don't know. He's poorly educated or something. No, he was a great. He was a great father-in-law. He he, worked, he, he worked <laughs> What did he do? In, he worked in his father's bakery, and he installed he had a company that installed underground lawn sprinkler systems. Just
0: wasn't good with words. No, but it's like, what did you think of that salami? <laughs> and I'm like. Just, was he hard of hearing?
1: No. He, this, this is the, this, these are the things that he used to say to us. No, no, no plum intended. Oh, my goodness. But the salami was the ultimate. Okay, so we're getting close to Thanksgiving. They're going to come out for Thanksgiving. He calls me, let's say, in October, and he goes, Hey, when we come out for Thanksgiving when we fly out, what are the chances that you could introduce me to Ewing Kaufman, to Mr. K? And I'm, like, and I'm thinking to myself, he must really think I'm a big deal. I'm just another person that works out here that got promoted. i go, well, Lou, let me see. He probably won't be in town. Let me see what I can do. So I go up to my boss, and I go, this is what my father-in-law just asked me. He goes, I don't think that's going to happen, but look, I'll, I'll make a phone call for you. So two days, three days, it's, it's November now. We're getting close. And I, a couple days go by, and Rosemary, who is Mr. Kaufman's secretary, calls like our office area. And uh, my administrative assistant, her name was Jenny, she goes, Norm, Rosemary says that Mr. K wants to speak with you. So I run back to my office and I go, uh, Mr. Kaufman? And she goes, Norman, this is Rosemary. Please hold for Mr. Kaufman. So Mr. Kaufman gets on the phone and he goes, Norman? Never called me Norm in my entire life, but this is, I'm young. I'm, you know, I'm like 26 young. I'm just here. I'm not, I'm not working with him and the Royals on loan now. What can I help you with, son? And I tell him what I've been, what's requested, and he's just silent. He goes, uh, when are they coming in? And I said, Tuesday, uh, and then there's Wednesday, and then I think that's like a half day, and then there's Thanksgiving. And he goes, if you can get them here at 10 o'clock in the morning, I could probably do a half hour, no more than a half hour, but I'll, I'll meet them. I'm floored. Mr. Kaufman, thank you, sir. He goes, hey, Norman, don't worry about it. Or, Norman, don't worry about it. Just be here on time. I'll take care of business for you. So on that morning, of, you know, uh, a day before Thanksgiving, I arrive at Ewing, Mary, and Kaufman's office. And, uh, you, know, this, and uh, you know, all I'm saying is uh, we are asked by this woman, Rosemary. And we walk into his office. My father-in-law is dressed poorly you know, in one of those, uh, you know, old. Uh, I'm trying to think of what we used to call them. You know, they weren't really suits, but they, I don't know, with the big, you know, with the big uh, collars and everything. And my mother-in-law, they're they're just in awe. And Mr. Kaufman steps by. She goes, "My name is Ewing Kaufman, and uh, we are so proud to have your son-in-law Norman had to have joined us here in, in uh, you know Kansas City. It's really been a pleasure since he's arrived." Lou, Joan. what might I be able to get you? Uh, I could, I have tea. I have coffee. Uh, I have water. And I go, oh, Mr. K. And, and he, he goes, Norman, sit down. I will get the coffee for your, uh, your mother-in-law and father-in-law. So I go, yes, Mr. K. And he, he uh, I don't know, he gets up, and uh, there's a coffee maker, and there's like Danish, and you know, it's a really nice office. It's Ewing Coffin's office sure. at Marion Laboratories. He actually comes over and he hands my mother in law a black coffee and lo and my, my father goes, uh, I, I need some cream. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Mr. Kaufman gets him, I guess, real you know like real cream and uh-huh. he stirs it and then he sits there and he he asks my mother and father-in-law what they do and they're both involved in the Atlantic City Casinos, which were brand new at that time, and Mr. K is a big time gambler and they have a great conversation. And then he says, You know, Let me just spend a few minutes and tell you a little bit about Norman and why he's here. Let me just tell you a little bit about what he does. You're probably curious. And I'm sitting there in total. He gives them a story about why I got promoted, why I was sales rep of the year in the East, why the things that I do, and and I'm successful. And he's expecting big things from me. And I'm like, and they're like taking it all in, like I'm important and I'm not. So then it's like, you know, and then Rosemary was saying, Mr. Kaufman, I, you know, you really need to get to your next appointment. She goes, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but I have to go. So uh, he says, I'm going to walk you to the elevator, which I thought was a very nice gesture. So he walks my mother-in-law, my father-in-law and me to the elevator and shakes their hands. And I say to them, I'm going to walk Mr. K back. So I walk, uh, I, I catch him and I walk around the corner and we're like a few yards down the hallway that my in-laws can hear me, and he goes, "How'd I do?" How'd I do? And, he, and I look at him I go, "Mr. Coffin," he goes, and then he takes out from his jacket, which was a royal blue suit, like the colors of the Royals baseball team uh-huh. yeah. and he and he he memorized the people that I work with wrote him a bio on me on my my career. He memorized the bio. <laughs> Now you tell me the kind of man that Mister Ewing Marion Coffin was, for him to say yes to greet my in-laws in 1981, when I just arrived here, wasn't even here. I mean, I I've been here like ten months. And make you the star. Made me made me look better than I really was. Mm-hmm. And but when he turned the corner, and he goes, "How'd I do?" Right. <laughs> I I mean, I, I mean, there, how could there have been a greater man to That's it? Awesome. Come on. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Was that not a good guy? That sounds good. Yeah. it's
0: awesome.
1: Well, he knew what he wanted to do. So from that moment on, I mean, it's not that I didn't love him and respect him. I would have done anything for that man. Anything for that man. Anything for that. And that company. Because I'm now, I'm bought in. I mean, this company is, is being good. Well, it
0: took a moment that was supposed to be all about him. They made a special appointment to try to even see if they could see him. And he turned that around and said, no, I'm going to.
1: Yeah. I was waiting for him to say. So, Mr. K., what'd you think about that salami and in Indonesia? <laughs> okay.
0: Oh, well Norm, this has been um, this has been a lot of fun.
1: I've had a lot of fun.
0: It's been a lot of really, really good information. I'm glad we captured it. Um, again, you and Rochelle, you guys are a great you guys are a great duo. You guys are a great team. Thank you, sir. You guys are great people. Thank you. And I mean, and like I said earlier. That seems to trickle down to your two sons.
1: And how you got grandkids, now how many grandkids? Two. two just yes. the two? Just okay. the, the two girls. Uh, five and well, she'll be, Riley will be five in December, and Aubrey will be three in just two weeks. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, I had no
0: idea. This is another reason, you know, these are great, because I had no idea you were doing so much, you were involved so heavily with your church. Let alone with um, you know the, the
1: the the job searching and helping people. Like I admit that. I'm just not that guy that was ready to retire. I, I, I get more joy out of life being busy. Anytime I see you, you're coming or
0: going. Yeah. You're usually going. Yeah. You're always dressed. You always you're always dressed. Not like casual. You're always dressed up. You always look sharp. Thank you. Um, and the same with with Rochelle. You guys are always on the move whether it's a dinner party or in a charity event or, again, like finding all this other stuff out, filling in the gaps because, you know, how many dinner parties can you go to? And it's like, well... A few <laughs> less, I hope. A few less. Well, you know, you wonder. I mean, I, you know, I've been in your guys' lives, you know, passively for quite some time. and It's like, wow, you know, you learn that you're into faith. And obviously, I know you're into your, your family and your grandkids, of course. Um, and it helps you now you have a destination to go. Yes, you're right. <laughs> as much as I know you would love to have them here in Kansas City, yeah. I'm sure it's nice you,
1: that they're... If you're with them for five consecutive days, it's kind nice of nice. <laughs> okay, to gotcha. Vegas. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, but um, but no, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you coming by.
1: Now, again, thank you so much for the invite. And again, I, you know, I know I'm here because of my wife, Rochelle. A, uh, Rochelle is just a good woman. Well, hold on her, now. It was her she, birthday yesterday. Yes, it was. And honestly, I'm lucky that, that I, I'm the guy she decided to marry. I'm a, I'm a lucky guy. But together, we've done a good job together.
0: I'd say you're very lucky. I'd say you're both very lucky. Um, you guys make a great team. Um, but I want to correct you because you're not here because of her. I mean, you're here because you have a rich history, like I mentioned a week ago, that should be recorded. Yeah, thank you. Not many people can say their father taught John Wayne how to two-step. Yeah. yeah. Who can say that?
1: He also told me that Charles Bronson was the best dancer out of all of those Hollywood actors as young men. Really? Yeah. Believe it or not, Charles Bronson was the best.
0: Doesn't surprise me.
1: <laughs> I mean, John Wayne doesn't seem like a natural dancer. Yeah, because John Wayne would probably have been in his earlier career, and Bronson maybe in his later career before he left Hollywood. But uh, it was What do you mean? Well, John Wayne was older, much older than uh, Bronson.
0: You, you said earlier... Sorry, never mind. I thought you said earlier in his career for John
1: Wayne. Yeah, I'm just saying when when, uh, when he first arrived in Hollywood, oh, 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 he oh, was assigned oh, 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 to my oh. father to learn how to ballroom ja- dance. And I think that Bronson, Robert Bronson, was really near my, my father's end of career in Hollywood before he moved back to the Philadelphia area. You know, because there was probably a difference of maybe 15 or 20 years between those two. Yeah,
0: not that many want. people can say these things. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, and he's not around to say it, so you have to say it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, uh-huh. Well, let's wrap it up. Let's shake your hand and let's get out of here. Thank you, sir. You got it. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Buddy. Thanks for your help. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Little Agency that Roars podcast. Be sure to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on fasonipartners.com under podcast. Be sure to subscribe, be sure to like, and leave a review. If you want to submit an interview or submit yourself for an interview, please email roar at fasonipartners.com. That's R-O-A-R at fasonipartners.com. Thanks.